Hello, everyone. First of all, I'd love to thank you for tuning in to the Integrative Thoughts podcast. I am your host, Matt Kaufman. And through this platform, I plan on seeking out guests that interest me, that I am curious about, and overall just living a more meaningful, purposeful life in hopes that you as listeners and I myself can grasp onto a little bit of their knowledge and integrate that into our daily lives. Are you having trouble losing weight? Do you get extreme food cravings, especially at night? What about the inability to lose weight even when you cut calories and do a lot of exercise? I know I fell into this category for pretty much most of my life. It's actually probably not even your fault. You most likely have what's called leptin resistance. Leptin is actually a hormone made by the fat cells that regulates food intake and energy expenditure by communicating with the brain. The more fat you have, the more negative leptin messages are actually being sent to your brain. This creates what's called leptin resistance and is going to sabotage all dieting efforts and causes food cravings even when you have enough fat stored. Introducing Zenith, this is an all-new, completely natural formula that gently decreases leptin levels to restore accurate communication between fat cells in the brain. Zenith contains zero harmful stimulants. It's made of all-natural polysaccharides and acetylated fatty acids, very safe for long-term weight loss plans, and it is made in the USA. In an eight-week, university-conducted, double-blind, placebo-controlled study, participants lost 21.3 pounds of fat, lost almost four inches off their waistline, and reduced serum leptin levels by 43%. So if you or someone you know, someone you really love is struggling with weight loss, head down to the show notes. I'll have a link there and a few videos where you can learn more information about Zenith. So listen, I've been experimenting with different types of minerals, especially magnesium, for the past five to six years. But I could never really find a product that I could feel the benefits that magnesium claimed to give. Magnesium is one of the most important minerals for all of human health. It participates in over 600 different biochemical reactions in the body, yet over 80% of the population is deficient. Magnesium deficiency can increase risk for all disease and greatly decrease optimal performance. That's why I like Bioptimizers. They use all seven forms of magnesium in a highly bioavailable form in their product Magnesium Breakthrough. Magnesium helps with stress, anxiety, sleep, immune function, detoxification, and so much more. If you want to try out this product, head over to Buy Optimizers and use code IntegrativeThoughts10 to receive a 10% discount on their amazing product, Mag Breakthrough. Today's guest is Ian Mitchell. He's by far and away the smartest creature that I've ever got the pleasure to speak with on the podcast, on the phone, anything just in general. The dude has his hands in so many different things. He has so many patents. He's on the front line doing the research in his lab himself. And this podcast is going to be a lot different from some of the other podcasts you may have heard Ion on before. He gave me two and a half hours of his time. So with that, I decided to just have some dialogue, a nice conversation about his life and David Hawkins and consciousness. And then I decided to reel him in towards the end about some of the products that he's actually developed. He makes the most amazing C60 uh, products on the market. So we dive into quite a bit of C60 and then some of the quantum technology that he's involved with there towards the end as well. I linked Wizard Sciences in the show notes if you do want to check out the best C60 products on the market. Enjoy. Ion, welcome to the show. How you doing, brother? Hey, Matt. Doing well, man. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, thanks for uh, creating some space and making some time. I've really been looking forward to this show. Ditto. Yeah, we, we've yeah. we've had it on the books for a couple of months now. Yeah, it's been a while. I was kind of uh, booked out pretty far when we talked because I was just getting back into the second season, and um, I kind of just like hit up everybody that I really wanted to record with. So, it, and I only do one a week. Some people do two a week, and you know, Joe Rogan does like ten a week. You know, so. <laughs> it's like, and it's just, it's a bit much. I, I find one a week gives me enough time to research and uh, still do all the other things that I'm trying to do. Yeah, he probably has to have like an IV drip of adrenaline to uh, to be able to keep up the pace he keeps up. It's damn near superhuman. There's got to be like a team behind him that's doing research for him too and giving him notes. And because, I mean, he's just doing the UFC and he's all over the place. There's got to be like a, at least a small team who's giving him some notes and talking points, I would have to imagine. I would think either that or a doppelganger. <laughs> yeah, something. He's pumping him out. Yeah, and he, he does a good job. He's evil twin, Ro Jogan. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> the only way he can keep up. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty impressive. He must be uh, really taking care of himself. I commend him, and it seems like he is. He's in good shape for being his age and has the sauna and the cold plunge, and it seems like he's taking the right supplements and doing all the things. So I – can't do nothing but uh, try to be a little bit like him, I guess. Yeah, actually, well, I mean, the way he approaches it is pretty admirable. I mean, especially, you know, he's got the Morosco Forge and he's doing the saunas. And it's, it's uh, for those of us who have done all of that stuff, it's uh, not for the faint of heart. That is for mm -hmm. damn sure. So it's, uh, but it does, on the upside, it does keep you going. You know, I mean, the proof's in the pudding. I mean, when you and I, when you and I talked, I think I was just kind of recovering from the motorcycle wreck that I was just in, but a yeah. lot of a lot of that was just you know applied biohacking, right? You know, I bashed myself up substantially and then recovered from it super, super, super fast. But it was you know all the hacks that we all know. Absolutely, yeah. Why don't we uh, before we dive into some of my questions? Why don't you tell people about that accident? What you did to kind of heal yourself <laughs> up real quick. Note to self, don't hit a patch of gravel going 65 miles an hour so into a curve. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's kind of like you you suddenly are in a frictionless environment with no control over the vehicle. And uh, on a motorcycle on the open road, it's a bad scene. So, yeah, I, I basically I face planted doing 65 on a motorcycle. And then as I was rolling the bike over on top of myself, my leg, uh, my femur, the upper leg bone, the femoral condyle, which is the curve on the bottom of your femur, punched through the top of the tibial condyle and went down an inch and then split my tibia straight down six inches. So the bone ended up wow. wedged inside of the other bone. And then my collarbone was split in half. And, you know, then I kind of get into a stop and, you know, with the bike tumbling on top of me and bashed it up pretty, pretty well. And uh, luckily I never lost consciousness, didn't get concussed. Apparently I have a reasonably strong head thank god um but yeah when i was when i was laying face up i kind of went through a quick systems check and rocked my head back and forth and thought okay no broken neck solid that's good and then i started going limb by limb to see if i could move and i couldn't move my right arm because it was just flopping because of the collarbone which felt very awkward and then when i got to my left leg i tried to move it and immediately screamed because it went down and then kicked off at a very peculiar angle because the, you know, the bone was inside the other bone. And so luckily this a kid came by a couple minutes later and stopped and said, do you need help, mister? And I said, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't, wasn't one of those things I was just going to pick myself up and dust off and, and, you know, hop back on the bike. 
so I got carted via the most bumpy ambulance ride ever, 30 minutes to a hospital, and uh, went in, and they loaded me up and brought me into a CT scanner to check out my leg. And unfortunately, and this was actually probably the worst bit about the whole thing. The two orderlies, because I'm kind of a heavy guy, and the two orderlies, when they were pulling me off of the uh, the gurney, um, they hooked my foot on the side of the CT scanner, and my leg was kinked, and it went and popped the femur out of the tibia, which, Ooh. yeah, actually, you know, that's the kind of thing that uh, I talked to a, one of the fellows that works for me who was a, a jump master. He was a spec ops guy. And he said that it's a high impact kinetic trauma and it's the same sort of injury that a lot of guys get if their shoots don't deploy. And, you know, the bone ends up inside the bone. And he said, yeah, you're really lucky because very often that vagal nerve shock, when you pop the bone back out, will trigger, you know, trigger your body to just turn off. And a lot of people keel from that. So I thought, well, yeah, I guess I was lucky, but it was it was quite literally the most shocking physical sensation I've ever had when the bone popped out of the other bone. <laughs> so, yeah, I'd, I'd imagine. My leg hurts just thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, it, it woke me up a bit. But then, you know, the, the one upside was they did dislodge the bone out of the other bone. So I kind of owe them for that. And then, you know, they brought me back in. The orthopedic surgeon came back in when they had the scans and, and told me, you know, flat out, he said, look, this is a really, really bad break. We're going to have to put you under open your leg up, put you back together with plates and pins and screws. And he said, there's a lot of metal going in. You're probably going to want to come back at some point after you're rehabbed and have us open you up again and take out some of it because aesthetically you'll be able to see, you know, like the bulges on your legs from the plates and the screws. And, and I, and I said, really, that's like, that's the best we've got. And, you know, he was, <laughs> that's, you know, that's what you've got to do. It's a bad, bad break. And I said, yeah, I don't, I don't think I'm going to do that. So I called my staff and said, hey, guys, go buy a hospital bed, set it up at the lab. So they went out and they got a hospital bed, which is in the closet across from me now, and uh, set it up at the lab. And then I had them go out to the lab and they picked me up in a Toyota Sequoia, kind of like a wounded dolphin. They pulled me off on a sheet and put me in the back because I couldn't really move and drove me to my lab and set me up at the lab. And I did everything. I did V-cell injections, which are the very small embryonic-like stem cells. I did seven of those over six weeks, I think. And then I did pulsed electromagnetic field therapies with one of the big, heavy uh, pulse center coils. I used actually the veterinary version of the, of the pulse center coil for equines, because I figured <laughs> it was like, like a horse with a broken leg. Um, right. And I literally would do cycles. I would do like between 40 minutes to an hour on my leg and then I would shift it and do it on my collarbone and then shift back and do it on my leg. And then I would intermittently do red light therapy. And then we actually I had my my team build a kind of like a crane, basically, with these heavy duty red light bays from the EMR tech. And they would push them over me and flip them on. And I would just you know put the goggles on and ah, just kind of bathe myself and upregulate the mitochondria. And then. I literally just did that for days and I was drinking hyperoxygenated water since I obviously couldn't really get in a hyperbaric chamber, which would have been great if I could, but couldn't really do that. And, and my hyperbaric chamber is not set up for that anywhere. It's, it's very large, uh, very, you know, hefty steel hyperbaric chamber, but it's set up to be seated so I can spend, you know, 90 minutes a day in it, not something brief. So that wasn't an option. So I just did hyperoxygenated water and then I used my Lila block and pretty much every modality that I thought would be beneficial, you know, and I was sucking down my wizard science serums all the time. So I could keep the, 
you know, to keep the system upregulated, taking extra NMN and, you know, GW501, 516 and all kinds of, you know, different things that I thought would add energy to my system and speed the recovery and, and doing cold lasers on the brakes as well. So literally pretty much everything. But the upshot was in a week, my bone had actually mended on my collarbone, moved back into position and refused. And that was great. And then my leg was completely mended and done in nine weeks. So rather than the, the prognosis of it's going to be 12 weeks before you can put any pressure whatsoever on your leg, I was back up with the bone fully mended walking in nine weeks. And, you know, the only thing that was kind of an oddity, I think, to the orthopedic surgeon was how things sort of interestingly moved back into their exact position, which was which was very lucky for me. So that was that was good. That was going to be my questions. Unreal. I would think um, maybe you could skip the pins and the screws, but you would still need some form of casting or something to kind of set it back in place. But it seems like all the biohacks, the body just knew what to do. Well, I'm kind of a firm believer that the body really does know what to do. I'm I'm also a big believer that the, the intrinsic kind of intelligence that dictates where the body goes and how it forms is not really totally endogenous. It's not all on the system. I'm I'm kind of a big, I, you know, big, big believer in the idea that a lot of the information is sort of stored on the cloud, if you will. You know, it's one of those things that we finally figured it out. And I generally think nature is many, many steps ahead of where we are. So if if we realize like, hey, you don't put every bit of information on the cloud, you keep a nice backup copy, or rather put it on the box, you keep a nice backup copy on the cloud. My guess is nature is doing the same thing. So part of that was, you know, really focusing on the pulsed electromagnetic field so I could amp up the signal strength, if you will, which was kind of my thought was, you know, if I boost the signal strength on the outside, I think it will translate over into the instructions on how to work on the inside. And, and actually, I talked to a lot of people, our mutual friend, Todd Shipman, Todd's daughter, Hannah, had snapped her arm. And it was a, a bad break, you know, kind of the 90 degree bend on her, you know, radius and ulna. And um, it recovered in five days. It was fully mended and fused, and it was all from pulsed electromagnetic fields. And then my friend Katie Wells, wellness mama, um, one of her kids did the same thing, and it was a nine day healing cycle. So, you know, and those are one was a bad break, one was a really bad fracture. And then, I mean, I'm, you know, proofs in the pudding for me, I've seen it firsthand because the the rapidity with which all of my bones mended was ridiculous. Like I didn't, I I knew I had read studies about it and I had heard about it, but I didn't realize just how efficacious it was. It just absolutely kicked ass. Everything came back together really quickly, you know, took the inflammatory response down a bit. The pain wasn't as much. I, I would imagine, I mean, it's kind of hard to say that. I'm guessing based on what I've heard from people that I probably fared better um, you know, and I'm sure I know that, you know, the red light definitely mitigates a lot of the pain. So I, I think I probably fared a lot better on that front. So that's amazing. It's funny how it's, um, everyone in this quote unquote, like biohacking space or kind of alternative health space seems like quackery because we recommend so many random different kind of modalities when, I mean, even when people are just sick, like I tell them, oh, Hey, come over, do some ozone, take some methylene blue, things like that. And they're like, they're looking for some form of drug or something. I'm like, I, I don't know what to tell you. I, I tell you, I got stuff at my house. If you want to come over and, and check yeah. it out, if, but that's it, so far out of their realm and they've just, they end up going and getting antibiotics or whatever. And I'm always, like, well, you'll see on the back end how that's going to affect your biology though. Yeah. Well, I mean, if I had, if I had gone the normal course of events, 
my I wouldn't be walking well right now, I'm sure. And I damn sure wouldn't have been walking in nine weeks. I would have still been recovering from hardcore surgery. And I I just think we can do better collectively. You know, I mean, and the, the sad part for me is, you know, Western medicine, we do some things really, really well, but some things are very poorly done. And I don't think that people are really thinking through because the technology is out there, but it's generally there's a lag time between when people do the research and when you actually see it kind of hit the mainstream. And and oftentimes, you know, doctors, because they're constantly working and trying to help people, they don't have time to go back and look at what the latest research is and, you know, the latest techniques, right? Like their CEUs, the continuing education credits, like they're not being kind of forced to learn the latest and newest things. And it, most of the guys I know that are doctors, their heart's in the right spot. They really want to help people and, you know, make a difference, but they're all slammed, you know, just this, the system in which they have to survive is burdening. You know, it's driven by, you know, the monetary constraints that they have to run under. They don't have enough time to, you know, my dad's cardiologist, he's a great guy. I, and I honestly, I feel bad for him because he, you know, wants to do more and help more, but he has, you know, like a 10 minute window where he kind of runs in the door and talks to him and, you know, figures out what's going on. Then, pew, you know, it's kind of like leaves the puff of smoke, like the road runner going out the room you know? and it and it's not for lack of empathy or trying to help it's just because he's got a lot of patience and you know he has to get basically like you know heads on beds kind of a thing get people in and out the door really quickly and so you know it's it's just a, a systemic thing i think that needs to be changed yeah that's part of the podcast and that plenty of other people doing better podcasts than me trying to get some of the word out on some of this alternative health stuff, which I think is really great. But um, let's um, kind of back up here since we kind of just got right into your motor motorcycle accident here. I kind of wanted to start off um, about you speak pretty highly of like your dad and your dad's intelligence. I kind of wanted you to um, paint us a picture of like your childhood and how his like parenting style has an influence on the work you do today. Oh, God, yeah. Um, he was. Well, I mean, he is. He's just a really freakishly brilliant guy and it was as a kid he was kind of like google before google uh i could basically ask him about anything and he usually knew the answer which was fantastic you know because i was overly curious and so having a you know having a reference point he had literally read every national geographic that had been written from 1850 or 1860 when they first started through the 1960s um, and, and he has an almost perfect memory. So, so it was really great. You know, I mean, obviously technology changes, but it, as a kid, it was a fantastic resource, but I think some of the more formative things that he did is, you know, in, in terms of trying to get me to think outside of the box a little bit, he always used to tell me that, you know, most of the world is asleep. People generally aren't paying attention and, you know, don't be a sleepwalker. Just try and observe your environment and see what's going on and make connections and, and snap too. And some of the things he would do this exercises with me, like one of the big formative ones was he would ask me a question and, and say, you know, can you solve that problem? And I'd go, no, I can't solve that problem. And he'd go, well, do you imagine in 500 years somebody will solve that problem? And I'd go, well, yeah. And then I'd, you know kind of try and take a crack at it. And if it, the answer was no, you go, okay, well, can, can somebody solve that in a thousand years? Do you think a thousand years from now, that's going to be a problem? And I go, mm, no. And you go, okay, well then just project yourself into the future, see how they solved it, then pull it back and then, you know, then work through it. 
And it was, you know, it was kind of an interesting thing because you don't have, when you're a little kid, you don't have those same mental constraints. Um, and in that case, you don't have the same temporal constraints because it's your imagination. You can just think whatever and whenever and kind of get a picture of, you know, what the future looks like. I mean, look at Gene Roddenberry, you know, we're, we're basically doing so many of the things that were done in Star Trek now, you know, and guys like Tesla, I, I mean, you know, what, 1908 or something, you know, at the IEEE convention, he was talking about how in the future you'd be able to have a device in your pocket that you could see people with and communicate with real time on the other side of the world. And he was panned. You know, they wrote him up in the newspapers as being completely insane and a nutter for saying something like that. And, you know, now, I mean, you and I are literally doing that right now. And that's, <laughs> you know, and that's just kind of the kind of the issue. So for my dad, he, kind of pushing the bounds on that was great. And, you know, he had me watch this uh, series, which is still to date my favorite series of all called Connections. And it was by this British journalist named James Burke. And what it would do is it would take one concept that we have in the world today and it would trace it back to its inception. And then it would follow the steps incrementally. And the, the reason that was incredibly formative to me is I realized that, oh, so technology isn't somebody just coming up with some brilliant idea. It's usually this additive system where you take something and then you modify it a little bit and then you modify it a little bit more. And it's, I, I think it, in part, it's one of the reasons that I really enjoy jazz is because you have kind of a, rather than classical music where everything is, you know, prescribed and you have all of the notes written out for you, jazz, you have kind of a structure, you've got your chord structure, and then you figure out how you can move thematically inside of that to create or demonstrate what it is you're trying to say musically. And it's kind of the same deal with both, you know, improvisational jazz and for me, you know, chemistry or biochemistry or physics or whatever the particular science du jour is, it's kind of like, do what do I have to do to have enough um, kind of acumen in that particular field so that I can flow through and, and demonstrate whatever it is I'm trying to demonstrate. And all of that goes back to the basic idea of seeing that, you know, no man is an island, you know, you, it's an additive function and we progress through time. So that was beneficial. And then one of the huge things was when I was a kid, I had really horrific migraine headaches you know, I had scans and tests and nobody could figure out what was going on. Um, so on a whim, my dad said, well, let's try this new biofeedback therapy. And, and neurofeedback was just like super cutting edge then, you know, it was very, very new. And so I ended up getting hooked up to, you know, all this biofeedback gear and doing that all the time so I could get a grasp on the headaches because they were, they were truly debilitating. Like I was having migraine headaches like three, four times a week. So I'd come home from school go in my room, cut out the lights, put an ice pack on my head, and sometimes just kind of cry myself to sleep because of the pain. And it was it was brutal. I mean, it was really brutal. Um, but once they hooked me up to all that gear, man, after after a couple of weeks, I was like, oh, well, this is this is interesting. You know, all the things that they told me were autonomous, like your respiration and your heartbeat and your body temperature, they're all controllable. And when you have a readout, you know, and you can see what you're doing, you become very adept at actually controlling all of those seemingly, you know, or supposedly autonomous nervous system functions. So that was huge. And I, I really actually think that was, that was maybe one of the more formative things because it got me, you know, to the point where I understood you're capable of exerting control over all of these things that you're told you can't exert control over. And so it really, it kind of bred a, a degree of skepticism, you know, first, first uh, principles sort of a thing where I'd look at it and go, 
huh, well, okay, if that's actually the case, how much of the other things I'm being told that aren't possible are possible? You know, and that that actually was really great too. And then one of the other biggies was he gave me this book about enhancing your genius. And, you know, because I used to ask him like, how is it that you know so much about so much? And he said, oh, that's easy, brain nibbling. And I said, that was brain nibbling. And he said, well, whenever I'm interested in something, I devour as much information as I can about that topic. And what I didn't know at the time, I understand now, but when you have an emotional component to whatever it is you're learning, like a very deep emotional component, you're really into it, it drops into long-term memory and you don't forget it and you have access to it. It's kind of like if somebody asked you what the favorite part of your favorite movie is, you don't have to think about it because it was very emotional to you. So it's locked. You have it and you'll always have access to it. And so if you do that with almost everything and, you know, you stimulate your kind of consumption of the information and all the data sets while you're really into it and actually has meaning to you emotionally, it doesn't go away, you know, and that, and that's, that's really true. And I mean, as, as time went on, you know, I started meditating and meditation was probably the single biggest change in my entire existence, because that really opened up not just my mind, but my heart a lot. And that's that's actually, I think, the, the more compelling component is, you know, there are a lot of brilliant people, but there aren't a lot of brilliant people who have really big hearts. I mean, if if there were, <laughs> the world would probably be uh, starkly operating in contrast to what it's doing now, you know. Um, but that that was big. And, and a lot of that was him. And, you know, th- th- my mom, though, uh, she was just all heart. And so it was kind of, you know, I had sort of the, the academic push and the, uh, the mental push for my dad, but my mom was just like the kindest, most loving, you know, person. And she's a, a blues singer and a jeweler. And, uh, which is, which is great. You know, when I was, uh, when my kids were young, I would, I would take them over to see my mom and she'd be doing things and she'd go, grandma's got a gig, gotta go, you know, and, <laughs> and my daughter actually just sent me a, uh, sent me a, a clip of my mom doing Mardi Gras classics. I grew up in New Orleans. So she, you know, sent over a thing and I was like, oh, what's this? And I looked at it and I was like, oh, that's my mom singing. That's very cool, <laughs> which is kind of hip, you know? So she kind of filled in the artistic side and the, the very just big open heart side. So those were incredibly formative things. And the, it, it, I digressed a bit with the, uh, the book on stimulating your genius. One of the things that it said to do when you go through it was, if you're going to be operating at the very edge of the capacity of what people think is normal, then a lot of times you're going to seem like a complete idiot, right? People are going to think you're an absolute nutter. And, you know, case in point, some of the work that I've been doing lately is all in quantum biology. And we've just done three experiments back to back where we very definitively showed that we're able to elicit upwards of 20% jumps in ATP output um, in double-blinded controlled studies at a university, you know, from 10,000 miles away. And it's remarkable, right? Nobody really understands exactly how it's working. I have some some pretty good theories on it, but it'll probably be quite a while before it's it's sussed out. But that's so cutting edge that it seems kind of silly to people a lot of times. And I think um, I think that's one of those things where you have to have kind of a thick skin. So in this case, um, I really, I, the exercise in the book to get beyond this was to go into a crowded public place and to make loud animal sounds, right? <laughs> which, which was 
I picked the Barnes and Noble right by where I lived in Westlake in Austin and went in and did exactly that and just, <laughs> which, you know, and people look at you like, who is this jackass? And, you know, it's true, like that that's something that happens. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it was kind of you take the sort of the stoic approach, like, you know, like like the Seneca bit of like, you know, what can really be stripped away from you? Well, I didn't die. You know, nothing really bad happened. Um, yeah, these guys looked at me like I'm a complete dumbass, but that's OK. Right. It didn't it didn't materially affect me or injure me. So I'm all good. And that uh, that that was actually pretty formative, too, because at the end of that, you realize like, oh, OK. I can do this. You know, I don't mind if people think I'm an idiot because a lot of times, and I tell the guys in my lab, you know, they, they sometimes are like, wow, it's amazing. You know, you pulled this off. And I'm like, yeah, well, right. But you didn't see the 50 times that it completely failed. You know, I mean, it, it looks great, but I'm actually taking the approach of fail fast, fail often. And very frequently I'll try things that seemingly are really stupid, you know, and people think they're just really idiotic ideas, but very often that that's the thing is people haven't gone down kind of the, you know, the, the road less taken um, because they do seem silly and people don't want to be ridiculed. And, you know, at this point, I, I don't really mind. I mean, my, my goal is to try and move the needle for humanity and, you know, knock out a couple of big problems before I die. And, and if I can do that, great. And if people call me a complete, you know, fool for trying weird things to that end. Yeah. So be it. I'm, I'm good with that. So all those things kind of combined, you know, per your question, those were the things that were really formative and, and left me in a space where I felt like, okay, you know, I was well tooled to this end. And some of the, some of the stuff was even a little more esoteric, you know, that things that you wouldn't know, like trying to, you know, pick out colors with your eyes closed or feel the colors, you know, and my, I remember my dad doing this with me, probably I'm trying to remember what year it was. I think it was 1989 and we were driving in a car at night and he said, and he said, okay, Rupe, I want you to tell me what the color is of the car coming up from behind us. And it was, you know, very far in the distance. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, you know, color emits a frequency, whether it's bouncing off a of visible spectrum or infrared. He said, there's, there's a temperature that's being emitted there, whether you can see it or not, feel it. And I said, well, what color is the car? And he told me the color of the next car is coming. And sure enough, when they would come and all I could see was headlights in the distance. And sure enough, when they would come up, the cars were that color. And I was like, what does this work? And I, you know, and so that seemed very fringe. I mean, there's, there's actually some people that do that kind of stuff now where they will train you to see with your eyes closed, which is very doable. Um, at the time I didn't, you know, cognitively understand what was going on. Now I do, but it, it was, it was very fringe if you think about it, but it's also very tangible. It just, it does just because it's not in the normal lexicon that people hit and say like, Oh yeah, sure. It's a blah, 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 blah. And they have all the wording to describe it. It doesn't really matter. It's still part of reality just because we don't understand physics. You know, I mean, a thousand years from now, I'm sure all of that stuff will be very well described. And it, literally in the other room, I have a thing called an M drive that people call, you know, an impossible engine, which is ludicrous. It's it's not an impossible engine. It's literally in the other room and it works like a champ. Um, the, the problem is people think that it violates laws of physics. It doesn't. You actually just have to understand which laws are applicable and what it's actually doing. And once you do that, I had to rewrite a bunch of formulas to actually make it viable. But once you do that, you can actually build the thing and then it works. And, you know, that's 
I don't know. It's not that difficult, really. It's just not common right now. So I, I guess the big picture there is don't worry about being, you know, laughed at. Just keep keep being open and keep pushing the bounds. And if you do that, you'll end up being probably reasonably bright. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. I've actually heard Tim Ferriss talk about that book before and uh, doing the animal noises in, in public and stuff. And I don't know where if it's just, um, you know, my Zodiac sign or what happened, but I have this natural uh just in inside of me like i've literally as a little kid or whatever i've ne really never cared what other people have thought of me i don't know where it comes from but i see it in a lot of people and i always think man i wonder why they, why do they care so much um because i think there's a lot of brilliant people in the world honestly and they yeah. don't share information they don't share information they're scared to share information like what if it's wrong like okay so even if you share some information that comes out to be wrong, it was the best you knew at the time. So you were yeah. you were still trying to do good. You can clearly be wrong. I've been wrong about a bunch of things. I was vegan at a point. It didn't work and tried carnivore and this and that. And now I'm back to more like paleo style. And there's supplements I used to take that I thought were like the, the best of the best. And now I don't even use them anymore. But I promoted them for a while or told people to take them. So it's like you can be wrong and be steadily evolving, especially in this space where new stuff comes out all the time. But I see a lot of people get kind of locked into a bubble because they're they're really, really worried, in my opinion, about what someone else is going to think about them in the long run. Oh, man. In academia, that's probably the worst, you know, because people become real stalwarts about whatever it is that they've taught. And, you know, you you don't want to go, oh, my bad, that book I wrote, uh, sorry, all wrong. Turns out, complete bollocks. You know, people don't want to do that because their ego gets attached to it. I, when I was teaching, I was teaching senior biochemistry at a university, and, and what I would always tell my students is, science is a point on a line. The best science we have now is going to seem laughable a thousand years from now. You know, there might be some bits of it that carry through, but for the most part, people are going to be like, what? What were they thinking? I mean, if you if you go back a thousand years and look at the real cutting edge stuff a thousand years ago, we're now kind of like, oh, you know, <laughs> and I'm sure that with the acceleration, especially with, you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence coming onto the scene, the, the rapidity of things changing is just going to keep going up, you know, and the, the hockey stick is going to become ever more and more tenuous and just keep ramping. And I, I think actually it's going to be really, uh, really difficult for people, you know, but, but that's, that's the thing. I, I just, I, I'm, I'm in for the long haul, you know, I, I'm going to try and hold on and, and, it, and keep changing and adapting so that, you know, I, I'd rather be thinking and, and saying things that are silly and not quite right than not trying to push the bounds. 100. I was, you took the words out of my mouth. Like I, I kind of love this stuff because we're often challenged to think outside of like, you know, and it took me a while. And, you know, I always thought when, especially when I was doing the vegan and I thought I did all the research and then, you know, I've, I've always thought I had this like cure all or, or the panacea and it keeps just getting shattered. And after, after, um, after being shattered a few times, you get really humbled and you go, okay, we actually don't know shit. And we're just going to yeah. keep trying to figure this thing out with the best tools that we have. That, you know, it's so funny because if you go into it with that that approach, like, yeah, we don't know what the fuck we're doing. You know, it's <laughs> it's OK because like we're trying. Right. I'm trying the best I can. My intent is pure. 
and, you know, I'll share the data and I'll share Like I literally, I was at the international bio conference in 2014 and I had just worked on this type of cancer therapeutic that was, I mean, what we were seeing was remarkable, like these just remarkable results. And I was in this uh, meeting with the head of one of the 10 largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. And after it was over, he came up to me and we paired off and started walking together. And he said, I'm going to call bullshit. I don't think you've done what you said you've done. I said, look, man, I'll, I'll give you all the data. I'll share it with you. And he went, nope, nope, nope. You know, don't want to see that. There's, you know, no reason for me to look at that. And I thought, what? Why would you not want to look at that? Even if, even if it's completely off the map and totally wrong, why would you not want to see that? Because if you can share it with your team and it pushes things forward, maybe one of those guys will make a connection and snap to you that I didn't make and kind of keep things moving forward, you know, and that was kind of the perfect, perfect example of that. But he was, he wanted nothing to do with it, you know, just like, no, 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 no. And I don't know if he was concerned about, you know, me suing them if they, they infringed on something. I, I didn't care. I just wanted to move it forward. You know, it was a, Last year, actually, with kind of the evolution of that same technology, I had, I didn't really sit idly by and just leave it there. I kept working on it, you know, and last year I uh, was meeting with a group uh, out of India and they had developed a, a testing mechanism whereby they were using machine learning and genomics and a couple of other blood tests to isolate and pre-screen for cancers. And they could see when people had cancer from, you know, basically stage zero all the way through stage four, and they could type it. And the government of India had given them a, a test and said, okay, we're going to give you 500 of our records, see what you come up with. And they ran it through and they got 500 out of 500 correct. And then the, the, next, the next time they did it, the government wanted them to do it again. Same thing, 500 out of 500, both type and, and uh, classification correct. So they, they nailed it. And so I, I talked to them and I, I was just going to give them my, my cancer therapeutic because I thought, you know, if you don't, if you don't do that, you're kind of a dick. I mean, you, you know, like if you've got something where you can help that many people, help that many people. But at, at the end of the day, companies are so weird. Like they, they won't, they're more worried about dollars and cents than they are about, you know, the quality of people's lives and things like that. And it's just super perplexing to me. Like I just don't, I don't understand why you can't get something to jive when literally you're trying to move the needle for humanity, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, at the end of the day, if I can save a bunch of people's lives and the people that they care about's lives, that's viable. That's like, that's a life well lived. You know, if I have a new toy, cool, but not, <laughs> not really, you know, would I rather have a golf stream or a thousand people alive? Definitively a thousand people alive, you know? Yeah, no, I, I really actually admire that about you. And I wanted to touch on that. Is that you trying to everything you put out, like save humanity and help people and uh, try to um, cut down on some of these diseases? Has that always been a passion or have you kind of curated that curated that over time? Is there something that no, sparked that? It, it wasn't always a passion. There have actually, again, you know, the, the meditation thing, not to hinge on it too greatly, but I am very different than I was 20 years ago, both internally. I mean, the, the, I was always a, a reasonably bright guy, but I couldn't do the things that I can do now. You know, cognitively, I'm fundamentally a different animal than I was then. The things that I'm capable of now would have blown me away and left me kind of 
awestruck back back then. I just didn't think they were even possible. You know, just the the rapidity with which I can you know consume data and then remember it and then synthesize it and put it together and kind of recapitulate it for whatever particular science I'm working in. I didn't even think that was a, a thing that was possible. But you know, over time, with enough you know work and meditation and focus, things just sort of evolved. And I, I think you know, effectively at this point, I've done pretty pretty close to thirty years of diehard meditation. And and through some of those periods, a, a very large amount, you know, four or five hours a day, kind of a thing. And it and it's formative. I mean, it's very, or I should say, transformative. Um, both, <laughs> you know, once you once you kind of transform, then you then you sort of take shape in in a in a different format. And the the big component of that was my heart at a certain point opened up. And that's not you know, kind of a, a euphemism. I literally, there was a point where it actually felt as if it shattered and opened up. And on the other side of that, my perspective was entirely different. I wasn't able to any longer move forward with the same isolation that I was prior to that. Um, there was a certain degree of connection to everyone and everything else that was overwhelming. I mean, truly, incontrovertible. I, it, it's it's difficult to actually put it into words um, because when I tap into that component of things and I focus on it, it literally just makes me want to cry because I feel that open because it just kind of, it plumes open and, and you feel more of a connection with other people than honestly than I would have ever thought was possible. I, one of the big changes for me was in the past couple of years was um, reading David Hawkins' Power Versus Force and that was actually kind of the final straw um, that sort of cracked me open. And it was literally, I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing. I was headed to visit a, a friend of mine who's a neurosurgeon. And uh, I was driving down I-35 going from my lab in Tulsa headed to Austin. And I was listening to the audiobook for Power Versus Force. And I was driving down the road and at a certain point, my arm kind of whipped up into, uh, you know, a, what's termed a mudra, but it literally of its own accord whipped up and locked into position. Then I felt like the top of my head exploded and tears just started streaming down my face. And, and for a second, I thought, am I having a stroke? You know, this, this is, <laughs> this is really, this is really odd. I've lost tangible control of half of my body. What is going on? And then, it, it kept going and it was just kind of this overwhelming sensation. I just felt like I was flooded with so much love. I mean, that's really the only way to describe it. It's just kind of overwhelmed with love. And it happened once that day, so much so that I pulled off the road and it was very intense. And then it kept happening every day, you know, more and more and more. And then it actually became a persistent state and then it ceased going away. And then there was another transition beyond that. And then another transition beyond that. And they were, Every time that one layer of the onion came down, it was more engaging and more compelling for me to just release. Now, that's not to say that it wasn't painful. I mean, to be honest, the things they don't tell you when you're kind of on the, on the path where you're trying to be, you know, more than than the normal, I think, uh, consciousness kind of gives you when you're born and you're trying to open up your consciousness, consciousness and expand your awareness um, they don't tell you a couple of things. Some of them are very painful, like the transition points where you have to release things. The things that you're releasing are brutal. And, the, you know, you've spent a, a lifetime or better um, amassing those particular psychological and emotional 
uh, kinks and hangups. And when you release those, it's, it's brutal. You actually have to work through them. You can't, you can't transition to the next level and still maintain those things. You have to release them. And uh, sometimes it is, you know, the comparison of, of how bad it felt to physically face plant at 65 miles an hour and have my leg move inside of the other leg comparatively um, was a cakewalk compared to what it felt like to move through and release some of the psychological and emotional kinks that had to be taken out to progress to the kind of the next the next point. And what I would just say is kind of the evolution that everybody goes through eventually. So, or I would hope everybody goes through it eventually. <laughs> yeah, well, one can hope. And uh, yeah, I've had similar experience. My first time uh, kind of dealing with that was uh, in a mushroom ceremony. Actually, I used to, uh, similar background, kind of like Luke, just a bunch of drugs and partying and then kind of got on the sober path and was doing the meditation and the yoga. And I was getting a little bit more clear and uh, a little bit more, you know, emotional regularity, a little heart opening with those practices. And so then um, studying a lot of Tim Ferriss's work back a while ago, I decided to try a mushroom ceremony. And, boy, you think you're just going to get enlightened, but sh shedding that, what all the emotion and that baggage that you have, um, it's it's rough. And um, you, you go through it. It's not like people think you take these mushrooms and you come out the other side as this this enlightened being, it takes like days to process all the childhood trauma. And there's been a couple experiences in psychedelic states where I felt as if it was a past life, like something holding on to me that I didn't even experience myself that I was letting go. And people think I'm a quack for saying that, but that's just what it felt like in the moment. I was like, cause there wasn't actually any, like, you know, my entire body was shaking and convulsing and I didn't have any actual like emotional stuff from my life coming up. It felt as if like spirits or something from a different lifetime were kind of leaving my body in some some way, shape or form. And it, it sounds bizarre, but that's just what it felt like. And I've been changed ever since. Well, again, you know, I mean, it may sound bizarre, but for anybody who's gone through that process, you know, one of the things that you, you don't get told is the the first the first steps. You have to release everything that you've amassed in this lifetime. The, the second level, you have to release everything that you've amassed in the totality of that. And that's, uh, you know, and again, people can think what they want, but that's just my personal experience. So, you know, it's kind of like people like will ask about, oh, you know, so you think the reincarnation is a thing? And I said, yeah, I, I do. As much as I think kindergarten was a thing, you know, my body looked <laughs> a little different. Um, you know, you probably wouldn't really recognize me then. I'm substantially larger than I was and and I sound different. But yeah, same basic soul, you know, it, and it, it makes sense if you think about it in terms of the idea of, of all things is generally to evolve and to grow and to progress. Why would it not be different with the basic intent of, of what is a human? You know, I mean, when, when a consciousness <clears throat> bodies itself in something physical, you know, most people, the, the way we're taught is scholastically is, you know, like you have a brain your brain thinks the, you know, the complex system of thoughts aggregates to form a neural net. That neural network creates higher order thoughts. And that's why you have a consciousness, which at this point I think is absolutely ludicrous. That's, you know, physicality is the epiphenomenon of consciousness, not the other way around. You know, you have a body because you have an awareness and then a consciousness, not the other way around. And a lot of the things that I'm able to do and solve and, and get through really quickly, um, 
I'm able to do those things because I'm starting from a different standpoint. If you start from the standpoint of physicality first and consciousness second, you're kind of hosed out of the gate. You, you can't really approach it that way. I mean, it's kind of like releasing emotional trauma for people. Yeah. Can you do it just biochemically by numbing them out enough? Sure. If the issue is something that's purely biochemical, if the issue is something that's truly deep seated or rooted emotionally, you're not going to get that out. I don't care what kind of you know technique you use or however you do it. You're going to have to do the emotional release and the, the work on your consciousness before you can actually get to a point where you're stable. And yeah, I mean, yeah, it might, it might sound crazy to a lot of people, but I don't expect anybody to, you know, believe that or, or take my word for it, you know, sit down and practice it. The thing I love about meditation is it is quite literally one of the most scientific things you can imagine. You know, if you sit down and you put in the time and you do the work, you will get the result, period. You know, most people, I think, stop because they feel like, oh, I still have thoughts. I'm not doing it correctly. That's not the point. Everyone has thoughts, you know, that at the moment at which you're in, you know, like nervicalpa samadhi or which is just the term for kind of where everything is stabilized and you no longer really think in the same path. Um, it's the world is very different at that point. But, you know, linearity is not really a thing. You see things more from both sides and it, it's not, you know, your consciousness moving sequentially from point to point to point. Um, and also in a, in a sort of separate way, it, things are much more collective, right? And it, the perspective there is very different. The normal perspective that you grow up with, you know, everything is, you're told that it's, oh, it's a delineation moving forward. Well, if you just sit down and meditate, I guarantee you at a certain point, those thoughts will disappear. Your awareness will shift out. You'll lose, you know, your sort of physical focus and, you'll have, you'll start to have experiences. And then when you come back, you know, that'll happen again. And the more you do that consistently, the easier it becomes to elicit those states on the daily. And after decades of doing it, you are just fundamentally different. You know, your brain operates differently. I mean, you can look at someone's fMRI um, if they've meditated for, you know, a couple of decades. There was a, a great research group that did that looking at monks and they were using a, a baby crying as a stimulus because we we're effectively hardwired biologically so that when a baby cries, your brain immediately has kind of a, a reactive issue where it wants to, here's the sound and then you have an impulse to move. Well, for people who've meditated for a few decades, it's different. The fMRI would light up in the cortex where you receive the sound so the auditory stimuli comes in, but then rather than everyone else where they immediately have this motive force that's exhibited where they have to move forward, you have the time to process and say, huh, what is the best action to take? So you become an active creature as opposed to a reactive creature. And there's a lot of benefit in that. You know, like case in point, when you're coming down, you know, face first into the ground at 65 miles an hour, you can go, huh. Okay. Well, so this is what ground looks like at 65, which, which quite literally I was, I was like, as, as it was going in the slow-mo with my face coming down to the ground, I was kind of acutely aware of what it looked like. And I thought, well, this is an interesting perspective, you know, <laughs> which sounds silly, but it was, there was a certain inherent beauty in it. And I was able to do that as opposed to just, ah, you know, um, which was nice. And, and I think in great part, that's probably why I didn't lose consciousness and, and why things were not so, so rough. You know, I was able to fundamentally disassociate from the physicality and the pain of what was going on and say, okay, yeah, I'm getting physical input. That's fine. 
you know, I, I know, you know, you've done, you know, Hoppe and Sananga and, and Combo. And with the Sananga, which is, you know, for people who don't know what it is, it's kind of the effect, effectively like pepper spraying your own eyes. You know, you're using <laughs> similar to capsaicin and, and you're putting them in concentrated drops in your eyes. And it, it's actually got tremendous benefits for your eyes. You can you can kind of overclock your ability to see at night. And um, which which sounds odd, but the, the military actually worked on a, a project that was similar to that, where they used chlorophyll derivative drops and they would put them in people's eyes and then they could see at night. Um, and another another group kind of as an aside did the same thing with retinol A derivative drops and they would put them in people's eyes and they could see like an insect on the other end of the spectrum. So instead of the normal, you know, 300 nanometer bandwidth that you typically get, you were getting, you know, like probably between the two of those, you could get 800 to 900 nanometer bandwidth, which is great because then, you know, you have, you have all this onboard hardware that allows you to do stuff that you don't normally have access to the compounds to trigger the release of. Um, but, but in this case, you know, it was, uh, it was a very interesting function to, I don't know, turn, turn those bits on and, and allow, allow something that is outside of the norm to occur. And, and that, and that just happens consistently, you know, if you push the bounds. Yeah, for sure. You must be a mind reader. Cause I was going to selfishly ask about your combo experience being a practitioner. And I know you've, uh, dabble in a lot of random, uh, uh, supplements and everything. I wanted to know how you felt with your combo experience and what, what you got out of Loved that. It. I, I loved it. I, Todd Shipman did mine and he's done a bunch of them. I actually had my entire staff or anybody who wanted to, uh, do it. He, <laughs> yeah. You can't really it. force that one on anyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it was, uh, I had them watch the, uh, the, the video on, uh, biohackers. Uh, with the, yeah. The that's a good from, one. Yeah. The women from higher dose, Lauren and Katie. And, uh, half of the, half of the guys were like, wow, that looks amazing. And then half of them were like, yeah, that's going to be a hard pass. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to spend the next hour vomiting. And it, it was really interesting. I think for me, the, the, the best part was when I was kind of going through what I described after I, I listened to that Hawkins book and kind of, kind of cracked open a bit. I, there's one of the things that I had to work through was surrender. And, um, it, it which, in the West, right, for a guy, when you're kind of like you're running a company and you're doing all this stuff, the idea of surrender is sort of antithetical to what we're really told we're supposed to do. You're not supposed to kind of be the be the alpha guy and do all this stuff. And and I realized that in order to move forward, I had to truly surrender. And so I was thinking of like, oh, well, how can I demonstrably show that I'm surrendering everything, physicality, mentality, the whole nine yards? And one of the things was I thought, oh, Sananga, that's brutal. I'll do that. So I, I went to see Todd and had Todd do the Sananga and I laid down and he put the drops on my eyes and I just laid there and I surrendered all of the sensations, everything, everything physical. And when I got up and this will probably mean a lot more to you since you're a practitioner than other people. And you should ask him about it because he still thinks it's very bizarre. We, we've talked about it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He was kind of dumbfounded because he said, I didn't think that was possible. Like there was no change. Like, your heart rate didn't change. Your respiration didn't change. Your musculature didn't change. Your eyes didn't twitch. And, and I said, yeah, that's because I surrendered it. Right. Like I had to let go of everything. And I did. And, and then I, and oddly, and when I was done, I said, I think I need to do it again. And so, and so, and Todd laughed and said, wow, that's a first, you know, nobody's ever done Sananga and then asked to do it again right after that. But, but I did it a second time because it was, it was necessary, but 
I will also say I have probably never seen a more beautiful sky than when I left after that because the the colors that you can pick up oh my god it, it was amazing you know I know it was probably objectively just a normal cloudy gray sky in in Florida that day but when I came out I was picking up hues of blue and purple and violet and things that I you know it was probably what a tetrachromat you know somebody that has four cones in their eyes it's probably what a tetrachromat feels like all the time they hmm. see all of these variations and shades to a very great degree as opposed to the rest of us who are just kind of you know red blue green um you know but it was it was amazing I, I, what was your experience with it yeah um so uh the the first time i did it it was uh just like a practitioner coming over and um but when i really realized the the sananga like with the vision is during training so i was out in the uh mountains in california in lake arrowhead mm -hmm. so tip top of a mountain so oh, and we would have uh yeah, when we would have breaks, we would like go up hiking into the um into the mountain, do some hape, do some sananga because we were we were doing hape like every day because we were trying to learn how to administer it and then trying to do some self administration. So it was part of kind of part of the training. So we were just like doing sananga and hape every day just to learn how to how to dabble with it. But I I remember texting my wife from the mountain and goes, I don't think I've ever been able to see this clear. Like I was doing Sananga every day and then going yeah. on these little hikes and it was just sunny and beautiful in the mountain. And it was just bizarre. And I don't have any issues with like, you know, I've never had to wear glasses or contacts or anything. It was just, you were seeing something different from the Sananga. Yeah. A hundred percent. That's why I had, you know, made the comment about those chlorophyll and retinol A derivative drops is we have the capacity to see a lot more than we normally see but they're not stimulated. I know that the the origin of the Sanango was the guys in the Amazon would use it so that they could hunt at night. And yep. Oh my God. I, I completely understood it after doing it because I see the same thing. Like I said, most beautiful sunset I've ever seen. Most beautiful sky. Just, it was like something turned ever all of my vision into 4k. You know, I went from a black and white TV to 4k and I'm like, Oh my God. And the, the hape, Hoppe is really remarkable, too. The ethnobotanist who first worked on Hoppe um, made some claims about it that I'm sure a lot of people would have a problem with. But he talked about um, how it temporally displaced him. You know, he would do the Hoppe and they did, I think, 18 rounds of it, you know, one after the other. Wow. And yeah. And at the end of that, he was able to see where they had to be the next day for their hunt. And he had an image of you know, these uh, these boars jumping over a hollowed out log at a specific spot in the river. And so the uh, the you know, the shaman that was administering it said, OK, well, you're leading the hunt tomorrow. You know, take us where your vision told you to go. And he said that, you know, he went to that point And sure enough, at exactly the right moment, six, you know, six boars jumped over a hollow log and he saw exactly what he had seen in the vision. And it, it's intriguing to me because I say temporal displacement, but you know, time, again, from my perspective, isn't as linear as everybody makes it out to be. And I, I think there, there are two things that are possibly happening there. You're either expanding your conscious awareness so that you see what's happening in the future, or you're simply moving forward with your consciousness and collapsing the waveform so that it, it ceases to be a possibility and becomes a probability and then becomes something that's tangible. You know, so you, you go from, you know, kind of, 
uh, Schrodinger to Dirac and you, you lock down the waveform, you know, <laughs> as it were in the, in the physics <laughs> terms. So you, basically you collapse the wave function. Yeah, that's amazing. And people always think it sounds a little crazy. So my wife and I, we host these retreats and it's kind of all centered around um, kind of getting out of your comfort zone. So we have like ecstatic dance and then uh, there's a lot of yoga practice and a lot of journaling around letting go. And then also it's mixed with the fact that they're we're out in nature. So they're out of their normal life. So they actually have time to process and think. And then we do a cacao ceremony on day two with this um, amazing uh, breath work and sound facilitator that's been doing it for decades. He or she's been doing altered state breath work for like 20, 30 years. She's like 60 years old. She's cool as hell. And so then we kind of break them through that. And then on Sunday morning, we do the combo. So like the, everything's been kind of building on top of each other. And then Sunday morning, they do the hape, the sananga and the combo with a lot of the intention setting. So you you see it actually become a lot more powerful in, in the retreats, in my opinion, because we've kind of broken them out of their shell. The intention's been there. The release has been there. The breath work kind of helps them break open even more. And usually after they do the breath work, they're like, shit, I'm ready for combo because the breath work, in my opinion, can be harder because my practitioner will really push them hour, hour and a half style breath work, you know, so like they're really getting deep and they're all crying and emotional. So by the time they do the combo and they set intention around that and all of the other things, it's been pretty powerful. We've, we've done about three or four of those and I've seen some pretty good results and gotten some great feedback from, from doing it in that type of setting instead of just like a normal combo ceremony at my house, which is still powerful. People breaking out, you know, taking a couple hours to kind of get uncomfortable and getting the peptides and the medicine very, very powerful by itself, but I've seen a lot better results through the the weekend style retreats. Oh, without a doubt. I, I think taking yourself, you know, both mentally and physically out of your comfort zone, putting yourself in a new environment. You know, we, we that's one of the things that's interesting about mantras is you generally don't want a mantra that has meaning to you because you ascribe something to it. Right. You mentally have a have a hold on it. And similarly, physicality in in the space that you're normally residing in same thing you know how you're going to fit on that couch in that chair on that floor if you're in nature and it's a completely new environment you don't have the same points of bearing and because of that you are de facto more uncomfortable with your state and that allows you to be more pliable just by nature yeah and a lot of times you know like i get people like i had this one guy he's like Am I going to be able to go back to work after after the combo ceremony? I'm like, um, I like, I'm like, so I think sometimes when they just come do it at my place, even though it's like you know real intentional and it's thought out and everything's great, sometimes I think they just dive right back into the same shit. You know, pick up my kids, cook dinner, like they don't really sit with it or think about it. So when we do it in the retreat space, everyone gets time and they've already been kind of writing out their goals and their intentions. So it really takes them out of their normal routine because some people just dive right back into real life after going through an experience like that. And I don't think they really process it. It's a perfect time for me to pitch my new company, Afternoon DMT. (laughs) 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 You leave work and you do a drive-through DMT hit and then you go back to work. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, that's what DMT is called, the businessman. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. It's how, how like people, they don't even want to give themselves like a full day, you know, like even just one day, take a nap, process it, 
sit with it. They want to go right back into whatever they were doing just because the combo ceremony is a lot shorter than like ayahuasca or psychic, you know, any other psychedelic spaces. So I'm just like, yeah, I mean, maybe you can go back to work, but I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't see why you would, you know, just afford yourself the ability to grow. I mean, that's the whole purpose of all this stuff. Right. You know, like a lot of guys, I think Joe Dispenza does it pretty well with, you know, taking people out of their comfort zone for days on end. Also, you know, just the way they do their meditations where they wake people up at 4 a.m. so that they're kind of operating at the, the peak capacity for melatonin output so they can convert it to DMT when they do, you know, big meditations. That's, you know, that's a really good stroke because people lose the reference to like, oh, I'm doing this, you know, I'm working all day, every day. But, you know, they're away from their phones, they're meditating for a ton of the time, they're doing breath work, and they're doing it around other people collectively. And there's, you know, consciousness is a lot like a bed sheet. You know, if you pull up one spot on it, the spots closest to it get moved pretty substantially. And so if you have a, a large collective kind of of people doing that stuff together, it it moves the awareness of all of those people, you know, with a with a pretty high degree of simultaneity. I mean, you can really like level everybody up. And if you do it, you know, where you're programmatically setting it up at 4 a.m. so that people are really hitting, you know, the peak potential of DMT you know, endogenously, then they're going to have what they consider to be super profound experiences. Because pretty much, you know, you have anandamide and DMT. You've got all these onboard compounds that trigger truly psychedelic states um, that normally you don't access. I, one of the, the only time I had ever wanted to try a heavy drug when I was a kid was when they uh, were doing at my school drug education days that, you know, the counselor, <laughs> you know, passed out this pamphlet. And this was probably horrible because I was, you know, a big time musician and they passed out this pamphlet and it said, you know, don't do LSD. It'll do this and this and this. And, and uh, you know, you'll see sounds as colors. And I went, I I'm sorry, hang on a second. Sounds as colors, <laughs> really? You know, let's put a pin in that. That sounds kind of cool. And noted. You know, I, yeah. And so <laughs> I, I have since had that experience. I was actually I was playing sax one day, and I, and I literally had just this huge moment of cross synaptic synesthesia where everything crossed, and suddenly I it was kind of like being inside a Monet painting. Everything I was playing was a color, and it was amazing. I mean, it was great, but it was, you know, I arrived at it through, you know, same thing, years of meditation and it just happened, you know, spontaneously it kicked off and it was beautiful. Like, you know, one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Uh, and it was great. And, and luckily I didn't have to, you know, do LSD, um, to do that because it was, you know, just something that happened organically on its own, probably because I put the intent out there that I would have liked to have experienced it. And then it just kicked in. Also, an aside, on the same drug education day in high school, this is the mentality of people when they're in high school. They said, oh, don't you think it'd be really difficult to have a job? And there was this one kid in my class named Rock. And Rock said, uh, and he was a total stoner, total drug. And he goes, actually, I have two jobs. <laughs> Which I will probably, it's been uh. like I will probably never forget that because I was just like, oh, dude, really? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. One of the funniest, just like he was so oblivious to what was going on. Actually, I have two jobs. So, yeah, very <laughs> That's amazing. And had you had been on LSD when you were playing the sax, you would have probably lifted to another dimension right there. A little micro dose when them colors were coming out. It might yeah. have been overbearing. It might have been too much. Yeah, no, I actually, I was like an Uber Boy Scout. I didn't do any psychedelic until I was 
in my late forties. Um, because I, I just, I had always wanted to go for just absolute clarity and purity. And, you know, I didn't eat meat for 28 years and, you know, it was, uh, and it wasn't an exercise in anything biological because biologically speaking, you're far better off if you do have healthy meats and proteins and fats. Um, and even environmentally, it's a more sound approach, but, uh, it, uh, it was just something I didn't want to do because I didn't want to have to, you know, deal with the, the consciousness of another critter. Um, but ultimately I, I ended up having to start eating meat because humorously enough, because of exactly what my consciousness was doing at the time, you know, you, you start to become too ephemeral and it's, it's difficult to actually maintain your grasp on tangible reality beyond a certain point. And meat is great because it slows you down. Um, and that's, you know, I mean, I'll probably get some blowback from people saying, you know, ah, I can't say that. Actually, it's true, you know, like, and, and even if you go to Ayurvedic medicine and you look at, you know, like the Pitta Vata Kapha and then, you know, like what's going on there? Well, meat is very Kapha. It's going to slow you down. You know, it's, it's also Tamasic, you know, and it's the Rajasic Tamasic. And, you know, it, it's, I, for the, for the longest time, I would do things that were just very, very ephemeral and light and sattvic is the term, you know, kind of the highest foods, just milk, honey, almonds, ghee, oranges, that kind of stuff, the highest vibration foods I could get because I was shooting for absolute clarity. And then, and, and then it's kind of funny because I had always joked if I ever hit the threshold I was shooting for that I would eat meat. And turns out I kind of had to because I started to become so disassociated from my physical form that I was literally having to look to see where my body was because you, you really do it. it it's kind of, it, it sounds, it sounds sort of like you're having some psychological break or you're being horribly disassociative, but it's really not. What's actually happening is you just identify with something different at that point. And so I would literally have to look down and go, okay, all right, that's where I'm at. Got it. You know, and then, and then get myself to move. And, and once I started eating meat, um, that was no longer a concern. I, it slowed me down enough that I, I felt like I was kind of grounded out <laughs> again. So it was a great tool and, and also uh, of, of important note, bacon is tasty. So <laughs> 100%. I feel a lot better once I started eating meat again myself. And it, it does seem very grounding. And in, mm -hmm. and in today's world, it's almost like we need a bit of grounding with all the stimulus and everything going on. And I definitely feel way more connected and in my body. I did feel when I was like vegan, vegetarian there, like during meditation, there was like some form of like light, like you kind of explained lightness or like higher consciousness almost that I was tapping into a little bit, but then in the long term, especially cause I was diehard vegan, wouldn't even do the milk or cheese or eggs or anything. Um, just started to get terrible, like hormone issues and gut dysfunction and all of that. So and kind of went back to like the more paleo lifestyle. Yeah, I was only like a diehard vegan for about three years, and then I was vegetarian for another twenty-five. But I did dairy and eggs, and and that yeah, and that you can get by with the yeah. dairy and eggs a lot longer. Well, yeah, and I and I also supplemented like a mamma jamma. You know, I tried to apply <laughs> what I know and make sure that I had enough of this and that. And and you really do. You can't. You know, Cheetos are vegetarian. You know, uh, Diet Coke is vegetarian. You, you, right. you can't take that approach because people get really tragically unhealthy if they do that sort of thing. So I did actually think about what I was doing and, and try and make sure I had enough nutrients and things <clears> like that. But, but ultimately, it, 
I didn't, I didn't stop eating meat because of, you know, something biological. And I didn't start eating meat because of something biological. It was just, you know, it was really more of, again, more of a function of consciousness. It was uh, a, a necessary tool for me. You know, at one point I had to put it down and then another point I had to pick it up. It's kind of, you know, like the, <laughs> the Buddha's idea of, you know, once you make it to the other side of the river, you don't carry the raft on your head, you know, like use it for the yeah. purpose. And food was, was something that had a purpose. And then at a certain point it didn't have a purpose again. And, you know, then I just transitioned to a different style. And I think it, the other funny part about that is I think a lot of people, myself included, you start to develop a kind of an ethos around whatever your dietary style is like, you know, carnivore, this, you know, vegan, that, and really that's, that's just another thing for your, for your, your awareness to kind of latch onto and your ego to, to have a hold in reality. And it's pointless, you know, <laughs> like it, it doesn't really matter. Like you're, you're effectively the same soul, whether you're, you know, smacking back meat or leaves it doesn't really matter. You know, 100%. We we like to get in these camps because we feel seen or heard or we have a community. And, you know, as tribal creatures, I think we do kind of, uh, you know, yearn for that a little bit. But it, at the end of the day, it just puts you in a little box. And then it just it's not really constructive, I feel like, in the long term. And then you kind of most people kind of end up some people do really, really well with vegan and carnivore and everything. But most people kind of find themselves back in the middle somewhere after they've kind of experimented every which way. Um, so I know that we could sit here and keep rattling and have a three hour conversation about just <laughs> life, but why don't we maybe, uh, reel it back in here a little bit. I kind of wanted this conversation to go like that for a little bit because you're just so knowledgeable about random things. And I like having conversation with you, but I do really want to, um, touch on C60 and all the benefits and everything behind that. So why don't you tell everybody, uh, what C60 is and why you became so fascinated by it? So C60 is carbon 60 and it's 60 carbon atoms clustered together in the handy shape of a truncated icosahedron or a soccer ball. So and it's literally it's like a nanoscopic soccer ball that's, you know, 1.2 nanometers wide. So very a very teeny soccer ball for very small soccer teams. And it's kind of, uh, you know, carbon is the backbone that our biology is oriented around. And so carbon 60 has a lot of benefits for a long time when when people discovered it, they they didn't think that it was going to have biological import because it's it's got a high degree of hydrophobicity. So it, it's not something that you can work well with aqueous solutions and water. And and turns out, though, that you can bind it to a lipid. And if you bind it to a lipid, you can get it to move through uh, cell membranes. And when it does that, th the thing that's kind of nifty to me is it. The, the lipid stays towards the cell membrane side and the the nanosphere, the little soccer ball, delocalizes. And because of a differential gradient, uh, it pulls itself to the mitochondrial membrane and wedges in the mitochondrial membrane where it acts as an oxidative stress buffer. And so just by virtue of stopping, you know, oxidative stress, you, you're blocking system loss in your electron transport chain. And so it, it upregulates the output inside of the cell. So your mitochondria end up on the low end. What we found when we were doing the testing was low end 18%, high end 58.3% um, of a shift in ATP output just by virtue of stopping system loss. So I thought that was remarkable. And uh, I started working on ways to come modulate that. And then eventually I realized, well, 
if I can stop this much, you know, and, and get additive benefit by blocking system loss, what can I do if I start additively working on things? So I started using NAD precursors and, you know, trying to upregulate the, the other side of the, the energetic curve there. So I started looking at all of the different complexes of the electron transport chain and isolating those and upregulating the different components so I could do that, which is one of the reasons why I think it's it's actually good if people take C60 and then they do uh, red light therapy. That's great because you're you're hitting an additional part of the, the complex on the electron transport chain when you add in red light therapy. And, and it's you end up with this very robust energetic profile where you're pumping out huge amounts of ATP. And the thing that's nifty is when you start at the very core level of intracellular function, that cascades up and provides a healthier cellular function. And then, you know, that collectively starts to work in your different organ systems. And, and so systemically, you, you basically build a better body. And over time, you end up with a literally a much more robust system where you have a lot more energetic power at your capacity, you know, or at your disposal, rather. And I, it's just, I think physiology functions really well when you have the required energy. You know, you can make it through most tasks and most challenges. And so that's, you know, some of the stranger things that I saw, with, I did this experiment with P53 knockout mice. And P53s, uh, that's your tumor suppressor gene. So these these mice, you extract the tumor suppressor gene and then you breed them so they don't have it. And they can either have, you know, one copy or both copies knocked out. And so in, in the case of what I did, I, I used the ones that had the shortest lifespan. And this is what we would use in oncology research is P53 knockout mice that are homozygous, like knockout, knockout, negative, negative. Um, they don't have any tumor suppression. So the idiopathically developed tumor presentation and that's just kind of the science term for randomly, spontaneously developing of no specific origin tumors. And uh, they have, because so many people use them in oncology, they have very regulated and well-determined lifespans. The mortality curve is very precise. You know, within a couple of weeks, how, you know, heterozygous wild type and, and homozygous are going to all die. And so I use the, uh, the, the homozygous knockout, knockout. And figured, okay, I've got these guys. They're going to hit it at, at this particular point. They'll they'll keel over. Lo and behold, they didn't. Uh, on average, they lived 93% longer, which was remarkable. And the the first necropsy, I did the first necropsy on the, the first mouse that died. And when I opened it up, it was very clear that it had died of a femoral hemorrhage. And but I couldn't find any tumors. And I thought, well, that's very bizarre, you know, certainly living this long and then dying of something, it should have had tumors, like there should have been tumors all over its entire body, but it didn't have any. And I thought, well, you know, I don't do this all the time. Uh, I'll send it out to a veterinary pathologist and have a full histological workup done so I can see what's really there, what's going on with the cells, and, and they'll be able to tell. So the next one that keeled over, you know, I put it on ice, shipped it out overnight and had a vet pathologist go through it and do the necropsy on it. Same thing no tumors. And then of the entire cohort, one, I think one had had a tumor, but it didn't die of the tumor. And then one was inconclusive um, because it, it had actually been delayed getting there. So the, the temperature kind of screwed up the tissue because the temperature, you know, you put them on ice and kind of need them there the next day. And, and it was delayed. So it was kind of inconclusive data. But overall, they still lived on average 93% longer. And effectively didn't die of tumors. So that was kind of a rem remarkable data set. And it really put me on a path of going like, okay, 
well, this is different, you know, and, and I had followed it up because there was a research group in Paris um, headed by a guy named Fathi Musa who had done a study. And my dad actually clued me into this one because I was looking for things on longevity at the time. And they had just published this study about C60 showing a 90% lifespan in their wild type mice. And the, the study ran for five years. And I thought, nah, that's got to be total bullshit. There's, there's no way. Like, if anybody were able to figure out how to do a 90% lifespan extension in, in a mammal, everybody and their brother would be talking about it. And so I, you know, but being reasonably open, I was like, all right, you know, I'll get this stuff and I'll try it. So I tried it in 93% extension. And I thought that that's not enough of a variation. That's not an anomaly. That's, that's obviously something statistically that's relevant. If they got a 90% extension in wild type and I got a 93% in homozygous knockouts, that's kind of something, something worth noting. And, and again, this is kind of where you have to be agnostic to be, I think, really good at sciences. You know, I had a notion before that, that lifespan could be pushed to a certain point. Maybe you could push it out 10, 20%, but certainly not that much. And seeing that, I thought, damn, well, you know, I just did the test. And, you know, obviously it's, that's something that we just hadn't identified, but it's very doable. Since then, I actually, my entire take on that is different. I, I think the idea of you know, 90% extension is silly. I think you can easily get a 200 to 300% extension, you know, just, I mean, that was, that was the early days of me working on that stuff. And since then, when you, when you additively bump up the energetics inside the cells, you can do all sorts of stuff. And, you know, I mean, there, there, I can think of, you know, four or five different guys that are working on things where it's very clear that we're all showing uh, age regression or postponing of aging or, you know, reversal of telomere shortening and it, whole different sorts of things. You know, you've got the V cells, the very small embryonic like stem cells, which personally, I think between the, the carbon 60, uh, NMN and V cells, that's kind of like my holy trinity of longevity stuff. If you can do anything, do, do the three of those and it will remarkably shift your entire existence. You will function as a different creature. You know, because the V cells, for people who don't know, the very small embryonic like stem cells, the nifty part about those is they're day zero, right? So they're autologous, they're from your own body, but they're normally quiescent, which just means they're basically asleep, they're dormant in your system. And you can reactivate them through hormetic stressors. So you hormetically stress them, activate them, and then you reintroduce them into your body. And because they have zero telomeric degradation, they are day zero stem cells. So it's as if you were able to find your, your, your own perfectly banked stem cells from the day you were born and then reintroduce them, which I, you know, like I said, when I had my accident, um, I did, I think seven sessions in six weeks to rebuild the area around my, my knee, right where the femur had punched in and, you know, kind of proofs in the pudding. It, it really works. So between that and the carbon 60, and the other additives, you know, like the serums that I do at Wizard Sciences, some of them are just the bases, like carbon 60 plus a different lipid. And the reason I do that in the case of, say, the Evolve is just carbon 60 and an extra virgin olive oil, right? That's that's your basic systemic anti-inflammatory. It'll boost ATP by blocking system loss, but that's it. Then there's another one called Elixir that is uh, organic coconut oil bound to C60. I, I do that because it drops neural inflammation. And, you know, your body moves lipids to different areas based on what type of profile it has. 
So, you know, in a medium chain triglyceride is going to hit your liver fractionated into ketone bodies, and then you'll pull some of that to your brain, and hence you'll have a reduction in neural inflammatory response there. Um, the olive oil, it's a long chain fatty acid, so that's going to move through your small intestine and your normal GI tract and, and kind of systemically distribute through the rest of your somatic cells throughout your body. And so you get kind of this overall drop in uh, systemic inflammatory response there. Uh, but then there's the the other products I have, like NeuralRx, I specifically developed for people with Alzheimer's, right? And that's the one that people take for cognitive enhancement, because if you don't have some huge cognitive deficit, all of the different components that I put into that serum upregulate neural fun function. You know, it changes your evoke neural potentials and all sorts of stuff. And it, you know, takes tau proteins and beta amyloid plaques and actually breaks them down into small components so that your glymphatic system, which is a a small subset of your brain and your lymphatic system can actually use interstitial fluid and cerebrospinal fluid to purge the interior of your brain. So every day you're structurally remodeling it and cleansing it. And then it also upregulates the outcroppings of neurogenesis. So you end up with uh, new neurons on the daily at a rate that's two to three X what you know your body would generally do with its endogenous compounds of BDNF, brain-derived nootropic factor, and NGF1, neural growth factor one. Do you outpace those things? And then you use, you know, um, kind of a, a drop in inflammatory response to trigger a couple of other things energetically. And that whole host of things I specifically put together for Alzheimer's. But again, if you don't have a huge cognitive deficit, you end up with a, a more robust energy profile in your brain. And the same thing with the Olympic serum, which is one of the other compounds, that's sort of the the corollary to what neural RX is for the brain, but for the rest of the body. And it's kind of become a, a darling amongst, um, you know, pro athletes and CrossFitters and things like that, because I literally made it for guys who were going out for the Olympics for pole vaulting. And um, it, they were looking for, you know, one to two percent gains and we were getting 13 to 17 percent gains in energetic output. And it, it's funny, actually, one of CrossFit guys are great because they track all of their metrics. You know, they're always doing a wad and they always have a PR and they know what their numbers are. And so I get calls from CrossFitters all the time. Like this week alone, I, I was literally in the past two days talking to one of the, you know, the top top 10 guys in the world um, because there's so much of a difference in output and they, they always want to go like, is this legal? Well, yeah, it is. It's just, you know, it's better <laughs> self and you're just making your cells more healthy. And then in aggregate, your body has more capacity. So, yeah, that's yeah. great. And um, so there is a kind of a, I always wondered that because I would use um, methylene blue and then stack that with my infrared sauna with the red light. So, and I know that that has a function with the uh, ETC as well. So there is benefits to doing the C60 and then jumping in the red light session. Yeah, methylene blue, uh, much like C60, is both a really good electron receptor and donor. So, you know, depending on depending on the environment it's in, it can either receive or give. And that that has a lot of benefits. And then with the red light, you're you're affecting the, the part of the ETC that the complex that deals with cytochrome. And so the cytochrome P450, so you you get the thing to oscillate and then you kind of upregulate. It's basically you're you're forcibly advancing the cell cycle. You know, there's a, a nitric oxide molecule that bonds onto the cytochrome and it kind of slows the process down. And when you oscillate it with red light, it actually moves it by virtue of shaking it and it gets replaced with an oxygen molecule. And so you're you're photonically advancing the cell cycle in the electron transport chain. So that's kind of that's kind of how that functions. 
That makes a lot of sense. Is there any, so I have methylene blue and I still use it from time to time, maybe like once or twice a week. Is there any benefits to stacking that or should that be on a different day? How's that work? I do it on a different day. I I've, actually, I get that question pretty frequently with, you know, from a lot of really avid biohackers. And I, I always say just do it on a different day. It'll make you a bit jittery if you do it on the same day. I mean, that's our culture for better or worse is like if five is good, 50 is better. <laughs> you know, and, and they're, like there's kind of a diminishing return. I also one of the other things is I also tell people. You know, don't don't do the serums I make or for that matter, any vitamin or anything. Don't do it every day. You know, cycle it. Right. You you don't want your body to become totally dependent on something because, you know, C60 is a great antioxidant. But if you literally did it every day without breaks, well, your body's going to shut down its own production of endogenous antioxidants. And you don't want to like you want superoxide dismutase. You want glutathione. They're really good. You know, you, you don't you don't want to shut those down. So you you time it so that you randomly intersperse it, you know, do five days on, two days off, three days on, one day off, whatever, you know, just keep it random so that your body, the same way you do a workout, really, you know, it's uh, systems in aggregate generally function the same way systems do in, in component parts. And you you want to do the same sort of like hormetic stressing of the individual cells the same way that you would muscle groups, you know, just vary it, change it up then you'll end up with the most robust energy profile at the end of the day. It's, it's just like metabolic flexibility, right? You don't, sometimes you want to be completely keto. Sometimes you should eat some sugar, right? You don't want to do just one or the other because you end up with an impairing of your metabolic flexibility. And really to be truly healthy, you want to have that flexibility. And the same thing applies subcellularly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so for someone like me who was kind of dealing with some neurological stuff coming off the Lyme disease, do you recommend, I've been using it almost basically every day just because I'm still trying to work through a little bit of that neurological stuff. Um, do you recommend for like a period of time taking it every day and then taking a break once you feel good or yeah, should you take breaks even if you're, so you do take it for oh, how long? Yeah, or something like that. That's a specific concern. It's the same thing for people that have Alzheimer's. Yeah, take it every day. Actually, for people that have Alzheimer's, I recommend that they take, you know, two tablespoons at a minimum every day, which is a huge amount for anybody that's taken any sort of MCT. You know that two tablespoons is something you have to work up to. Otherwise, you know, it's your, your GI tract is just going to be obliterated. Um, but yeah, for people with some sort of specific task in mind, yeah, like anything else, you know, if you're doing a training for a marathon, the regimen is very different than if you're just training for general health. And so if you're working with some sort of cognitive deficit, yeah, hundred percent, keep doing it because you've got to both do a detoxification cycle inside yourself, you know, because of the Lyme, as well as trying to upregulate the potentiation. So yeah, keep, keep rocking it the way you're rocking it. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, for people who are dealing with some neurological stuff, uh, the detoxification at the beginning for me was pretty rough. I was I wouldn't take it on the days that I had podcasts or I would wait until after the podcast to take it because I'd get really fatigued and tired. I actually told you that I, I took mm -hmm. a tablespoon the very first day because I heard about all these like, oh, brain enhancement, you know, Todd's telling me it's a nootropic, but it, it is if you don't, or if you're not coming off of Lyme disease. And so I take a tablespoon and I take some nootropics and I get on this podcast and about halfway through I'm like, man, I need some nicotine or something. Like I am literally like about to fall asleep. I didn't, I didn't realize it was going to hit me that hard, but yeah, it can be pretty brutal if you're dealing with some neurological stuff in the beginning. 
Yeah, well, that's one of the things that I think people don't realize how intense it is. But, you know, it again, it was designed to help people that were at a massive cognitive deficit. And it does. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I've seen it firsthand quite a few times. I have, you know, people who've used it with family members who have impairments and to great benefit. You know, I, I suppose I can't make any medical claim, but, you know, uh, I can certainly point you in the direction of the doctors who've used it with their family and they can make a medical claim. Um, you know, my goal was just to try and help people that were at a, at a deficit, um, you know, and most people don't have that much of a cognitive deficit. So for them, it is, it's just a nootropic. You know, I know, you know, since you know Todd and Jill, when Jill first started taking it, she was kind of in a space where she was very mentally cloudy. And I think part of the reason that she's a big proponent, as is Todd, is because she literally went from being mentally fuzzy and not able to do a whole lot to reading a book a day with flawless recall on stuff. And it was such a stark contrast that, you know, she's, it's been, I don't know, two or three years now, and she still takes it on the daily. And it's, uh, you know, I, I do too. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly going for a better brain and I want to have better function and things like that. And, you know, I mean, as long as I'm, as long as I'm in a physical body, I'm going to try and make sure that the thing is humming along and functioning really well. And with the, the longest longevity I can give it. And to that end, you know, pumping your brain full of C60, uh, seems to have some good benefit. Uh, you know, again, I've probably taken more of that stuff than literally any other, you know, human for sure. Um, most likely any other living critter and, you know, so far so good. Uh, if I keel over tomorrow, I retract all of these statements and I recommend that. (laughs) But, you know, I'm, I'm definitely the canary in the coal mine and so far it's been great. I mean, I haven't, I haven't noticed a lot of detriment. In fact, it's, it's actually just the opposite of that. It's been a little peculiar because the, the way that I'm aging, um, you know, I'm definitely still aging, but the way that I'm aging seems to be different than most of my friends who aren't doing it kind of from the, from the same group. I've noticed some very definitive changes, uh, that, that I'm not seeing that a lot of them are seeing. So, you know, for being squarely in my fifties, I don't, I don't feel energetically compromised. I mean, I have a workload that is truly insane and I'm humming through it pretty well. And cognitively, I don't feel like I'm dropping. If anything, I feel like I'm picking up steam and enjoying it. Yeah, the the actual molecule itself just seems so interesting. Be, well, especially because you blend it with these other kind of energetic boosters. We'll get into some of those like the, the NMN and all that stuff. But it seems to kind of upregulate cellular function, get things moving antioxidant so it's like kind of buffering the oxidative Mm -hmm. stress that we're all dealing with from just current lifestyle and environmental stressors and then also it's also um, a binder right so it's also detoxifying what's in your body as well so it's got like so many different mechanisms that it works on it's it's kind of insane well it's renally and hepatically protective so you know your your kidneys and your liver are really buffered and it's interesting, actually, like if you try and knock out a lab mouse that's taken it, you use a thing called CCL4 carbon tetrachloride, and you have to up the amount to knock them out that you normally use, like two, two and a quarter times or so what you'd normally use, because it binds and processes through the system so quickly that they're just, they just keep a humming, you know, and it's, it's also, it's very protective against radiation too, which is great. 
um, you know, uh, we were we were doing some experiments with thorium around the lab, and and my team was you know very very reluctant to move too close since it was pegging the Geiger counter, and and this may just be it may sound kind of brazen, but I, I knew because I've read the studies and I had you know kind of known the the quantities and what the data set was. I wasn't worried about it, you know. So I, if need be, I just walk up and deal with the stuff as opposed to kind of going, ah. you know, when the Geiger counter goes off, everybody winces and backs away. I just figured out. Ah. You know, I can handle the load. It's not that I'm going to sign up to go, you know, like pitch a tent in Fukushima and chill out at Chernobyl. But, you know, but but it's still um, it, it definitely based on the studies that I've seen. It, it's really amazing how well that molecule seems to stabilize our own physiology in a, in a beneficial way. I say I say I, I don't know if I could say stabilize beyond a certain threshold. I think it stabilizes it. Initially, when you don't have it in your system, I think it's kind of rebuilding things and reformatting things. But at a certain point, I feel like it becomes a very stable function. One of the stranger things is that I did a clinical trial probably eight years ago with 50 different animals, you know, 50 dogs. And it was in two phases. You know, the first was safety and toxicity and the next was efficacy and dosing. And when I got the blood work back, I did a, a full cytokine panel on, the, on all the dogs and I didn't understand how it shifted, it really precipitously dropped all the cytokines. But the other thing was just the the CBC, the normal blood workup, the, the, the Chem 20. Um, all of the levels that were high dropped into normal range and all the levels that were low elevated to normal range. And, and I, at the time I didn't really understand, you know, how adaptogens work, but that's effectively what it, what it really seemed like is like, wow, this mm -hmm. is a pretty phenomenal adaptogen. It's, it's doing, and it, and it's because of the ability to either accept or donate electrons. I think that it that it does that, but it kind of fits, you know, in the in the missing spot, fills the void, if you will, biologically. And because of that, it's just, it's, you know, I'm sure at some point somebody will find something better. But so far, it's it's the best thing I've seen. Like if I I wish I could drop the price on it a lot, so I could just make it more and more ubiquitous. I mean, I'm I'm actually working on new methods of production so that I can do that. Because I think once, once people realize the inherent benefit of it, more and more people are going to want it. And right now there's just, we're kind of in that early adoption phase where really there's probably less than 1% of the people that it's really applicable for are actually using it. And then, so I'm kind of, you know, boom, boom, beating the drum, trying to get the word out. <laughs> but eventually I'd like to really drop the bottom out of the costs so that instead of, you know, instead of being, you know, $60,000 a kilo, um, you know, it's, you know, $60 a kilo. Um, it, because th that's when, you know, that's when you're going to be able to make a dent and get it out to everybody and get it on the shelves at, you know, Costco and Walmart and stuff like that. Prior to that, it's, it, it's, you know, the, the domain of the biohackers and the people who are, you know, trying to overcome some sort of ailment or something like that. Yeah. I was actually going to ask you about that. So do you think that you're going to be able to develop, cause I know it's made in a lab, but it's still pretty expensive. I think a bottle's like a, I mean, at least the Neural RX is like 150 bucks, almost 140 yeah. bucks, which is quite, it's not that pricey if you're dealing with something neurological because seeing functional practitioners and all of that is way more money than a, a couple bottles of, of Neural RX. But, um, for the average person who's just trying to add, add a stack on or add a supplement, then it can be quite pricey if you have kids and whatever. Yeah, um, so do you, do you think you're going to get that price down somehow, some way? Oh, yeah. 
yeah, that's my goal is to, you know, make it more available to more people. So yeah, over time I've been working on different methods to, to make C60 because that's really the, you know, the other components are reasonable. Um, PQQ is kind of expensive. NMN is kind of expensive, but not, not even remotely close to C60. That's by far and away the most expensive component. And it's just because of the synthesis process. It's very difficult and, you know, it's very specialized. Like it, I had built a carbon arc uh, because that's one of the main methods that people use to make it is you take two carbon graphite rods and you arc them together and kind of when they explode and they get very hot, then, you know, around three to seven percent of the stuff that's left over is actually C60. And then you run it through a filtration column on an HPLC and you separate it out and then you're left with the the actual C60. Um, but there, there are other ways to do it that are better. And, you know, it, once I get it pegged down, I'll, I'll feel pretty hop skippy because I'll be able to start making it something that's available for a lot more people. Yeah, but that way sounds really fucking cool, though. That sounds really, really gnarly, dude. <laughs> it's actually, yeah, it's cool. And it's driven by, uh, it, at least the one I built, we drove it with two welding machines. So we had two very large arc welders, one on each side to power it. And, uh, you know, put them together and then it, it you know, it blows up and it's 10,000 degrees and it's super bright. And yeah, it is. It's actually is like for a science nerd. Yeah, it was awesome. You know, to build one of those things from scratch was great, too. Uh, it was it was yeah. very fun. That's amazing. Yeah, that, that was like, wow, that sounds actually fantastic just to be able to as as being I'm not a science nerd, but I like science when I was younger. It would be cool to just watch something like that. Sounds awesome. Yeah. It, it's kind of, you know, I, I still am kind of marveled at, at the, uh, the fact that I get to do what I do, you know, because I get to play with all kinds of cool stuff. And my lab is great because we've got a section for, you know, chemistry and biochemistry and then electronics. And then we have a metal fabrication shop down in one of the other bays. And so we can pretty much build anything. And, and I, and I work in a lot of different fields. So I'm, you know, there part of the time I'm working on like concrete and biochar and, you know, stuff like that. So it's very different than working with, you know, B cells and doing doing stuff with, you know, the microscopes in the other room. Um, and it, it's all cordoned off in, in good ways. But it, it's just it's so much fun, man. I, I mean, I, you know, like you have uh, I'm definitely scratching my own itch and kind of, huh, I wonder what that's like. How do I do that? How can I solve that puzzle? And, you know, I'm pretty much trying to do things. I when I opened the lab like a decade ago, almost I uh I wrote down these six things on my board that I really wanted to solve. And so pretty much everything that I've been doing is kind of working towards that end. And it's funny because I wrote it down kind of like stream of consciousness, just like these are the things that I want to do. And since then, everything has kind of been lining up. Um, you know, it's personally my take on that is that we don't really push ourselves into the future much like nature things you know the wind doesn't we we think it's doing like the wind is blowing it's really not it's actually being drawn past you right there's a low pressure center on one side of you and it's being pulled pulled past you and similarly i think you know we have the conception because we're you know driven with an ego and in kind of in in a frame of reference of a particular psyche that we're doing all these things and pushing ourselves into the future which i don't actually believe anymore i i think we have an inherent potential in humanity as a whole is meant to move in a certain direction. And so we're actually being pulled in that direction. It, it, this is on the note of the meditation and, you know, kind of working towards the expansion of your own consciousness and the stabilizing of it at different levels of awareness. 
one of the things that always used to really piss me off was when people would say, you know, just you know yourself to be enlightened, understand that, you know, it's all inherent and it's all there and just you have to just let go. That used to drive me bananas because I would always <laughs> be like, for the love of God, just tell me what to do. Give me the steps. <laughs> I'll execute on the steps. Just make it programmatic. I'll I'll work on it. I'll just work the steps. You know, I'll go through this thing. Well, as it turns out, as much as it pains me to admit it, they were totally right, right? Like you're not you're not pushing yourself forward. If anything, you are clinging desperately to the things that hold you down on the path up the mountain, right? You know, it's not that it's not that you're you're climbing and trying to push yourself up this mountain. No, you're clinging to the rocks and your own awareness and consciousness are are intended to move you up. You just don't want to let go. The moment you let go, poof, everything just pops up. Um, but you could not, you could not have gotten me to believe that it's one of those things that it's experiential. You have to move through it and you can say it as much as you want, but until you actually have the experience, it's an entirely different function. Yeah. No, I, I totally get it. If you'd have told me that six years ago, I'd have called you, I'd have been like, fuck you. I don't, I don't want to hear that. Yeah. Give, yeah. give me a system, give me a structure, tell me how to do it so I can work towards it. Not this sit in meditation, this foo-foo, let it come to you. Yeah. You can attract it or you can you can get more done by doing less and just thinking like all these concepts. I was I would have never I just wanted to know how to do something and then let me work towards it. And if I if I worked hard enough within that realm of that structure, then one day the new idea would pop into my head or I would get a breakthrough yeah. of some sort. But it's so funny when you kind of get tapped in a little bit more to to just like consciousness and things that it, they are totally 100 percent right. Damn this thing. I hate to admit it. You know, one of the one of the guys that that works with me, he's really he's got a great heart, really great guy. And we were talking one day and he was talking about kind of his own process and, you know, wondering he was kind of questioning himself, like, was he moving enough and doing enough? And he, he really does have a great heart. And he's, you know, driven, driven just to help people, which is admirable. I mean, I, I wish there were, were a lot more of that in the world. And I, I said, look, man, you know, don't stress about it. You're going to become exactly what you're intended to become. No acorn ever had to go to oak tree school. You know, it's not like the inherent potential for what you're supposed to express and become is on board. It's already there. We just are moving through the motions of becoming what we really already are. And that's, and it just becomes more clear. It's like, it's like you kind of, I, I think your soul is fuzzy. It's kind of obfuscated a bit by lens and over the span of your life, you sort of polish the lens and the, the image becomes more and more and more clear as you do that until eventually you kind of go, oh, well, look at that. You know, that's what I'm actually intended to become. And it's a, it's a process, but it, it doesn't have to be an arduous process. You know, I mean, truly, the, the idea of the programmatic thing, basically, I would probably jump around and try all these different things like, oh, let, let me try this style and let me do this kind of meditation and do this breath work and try this. And the reality is it, it wouldn't have mattered if I had just sat down. It was going to happen at the moment it was intended to happen, which, again, very frustrating, but also just the reality of it is, you know, snow off a leaf. The moment it's supposed to happen, it does. And, you know, but it's just it's so different than the the hard charging, like, I'm going to make this happen that you approach it with. It's a bitch because you don't, 
yeah, at least for me, you know, I couldn't wrap my brain around that at the time, you know, and the funny part of that statement is it's very indicative of the, the problem. I was trying to wrap my brain around it. You know, the reality mm-hmm. was I ditched that entire construct. You know, it had had fuck all nothing to do with my brain whatsoever. It was entirely based around my consciousness and, and actually just letting it kind of blossom into what it was meant to be. So. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and, you know, kind of circling back around, that's why I love these products, because I think and I know from experience how much you basically can't get done when you're dysregulated. You know, I was tapped in, I was doing mushroom ceremonies, I was trying combo. But at the end of the day, I still was like just functioning at a very low level, a lot of fatigue, a lot of brain fog, wouldn't even have been able to have this conversation. And so I think that there's there's like, you know, I try to have one foot in both worlds, which it seems like you kind of do as well, like super, you know, meditations, a lot of consciousness, but also at the other end, it's like, you know, there's a lot of environmental stressors, you know, the food's not as good a quality as it used to be. So you kind of need to supplement so that you can be like optimized and be functioning optimally. And then from there, everything else will kind of fall into place because if you have the energy to do everything and take care of your family and go to work or whatever it is that you have to do, then you will get just be more productive and then more free flowing ideas, just more creativity comes like the better I feel. I'm like, oh, I like I can't even believe that I can get all this done in one day when I used to have to take a nap after just going to the store for 10 minutes because I felt I don't know if it was the EMFs or just the people. I was so just uh, affected by any little environmental stressor that I would just need a nap like every single day. Yeah, I think I 100% agree. I think those things build up. I mean, if we lived in a perfect environment where we weren't beleaguered with EMFs all day and we didn't have, you know, chemical toxins being, you know, launched at us through everything we consume and everything we breathe, you know, one of the one of the fundamental problems people aren't really acutely aware of though they should be is the respiration rate in the past century has shifted remarkably. You know, we used to respire six to eight times a minute. Now it's something like 14 to 16 times a minute. It's gone up so much because the available oxygen in the atmosphere has dropped. Our, our biology evolved with, you know, 21 parts uh, or 21 percent oxygen is kind of the the way we evolved biologically. And now we've got 19 percent oxygen in the atmosphere. So we're running at a 10 percent deficit, you know, and how do we compensate? We breathe rapidly. Um, you know, it's it's kind of the same thing. Like if you need to move faster, you your heart beats harder and beats faster because you're trying to compensate. It's kind of like a, a respiratory tachycardia. <laughs> you know, we're we're having to respire more rapidly just all of the time because we need the oxygen. And so we're we're coming into it at a deficit. I think if like as you said, if we were in a great environment, you know, we were in nature and we didn't have all this stuff going on and, and the world were clean. Yeah, I I probably wouldn't be working on making supplements and trying to rebalance people. I'd probably be chilling out by a stream somewhere enjoying my day. Um, <laughs> you know, like look at all the pretty rocks and the beautiful stream. But you know, the the reality is the, the world is not that place. So, you know, you you assess it for where it is and what it is. And, you know, I can contribute, I think, a bit. So that's that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, before I switch topics, is there anything you think we missed out on C60? I know you could talk about it for days. Is there anything important that you want to add in on that C60 conversation? Um, no, I, I just think try it, you know, find find uh, find an inexpensive variety. Find, you know, try the I, I'm kind of biased towards mine because I 
you know, I know that the, the way they're manufactured is really aces and, you know, we do things a little differently and the, in the amounts we put in are higher, you know, everybody, I think typically bops out at around um, 0.8 milligrams per milliliter. And, you know, I'm doing 1.2 mix per mil with the exception of the, the one that's in the organic coconut oil, because it literally just won't hold that much with that lipid. But, but the other stuff is, you know, like try the evolve it's, you will feel the difference. If nothing else, you'll drop the inflammatory response in your body and you, you'll feel better. Like for people that have arthritic conditions or things like that, and they just need the inflammatory response gone, drop the inflammation in your body, do something like that. And it's, you know, it's not so much whether it's my company or, you know, my old company or, or any of the other guys like Live Longer Labs or, you know, some of the guys that I think are really on point, Purple Power. There's a lot of people that that have good products. Um, just try it. But, you know, it's it's a remarkable molecule. Again, I'm I'm always looking for the thing that's going to, help people perform the best and become more effective. And I, I think if more people had an awareness of what exactly happens physiologically when you take it, it would be super popular. You know, I'm mean, not that I'm trying to be like the, the Linus Pauling of C60. Um, but, you know, I mean, he kind of beat the drum on vitamin C and really got the message out there and consumed a ton of it. You know, he do like 10 grams a day and I do a huge amount of C60 but the benefits are great, you know, and Linus lived to, you know, I think at 90, something like that, or in his nineties rather. And, you know, I, if all goes well, you know, and I don't get back on my motorcycle <laughs> and, and try and find patches of gravel at sunset, um, you know, it, uh, I'll, I'll probably live a reasonably long life in good health. And, you know, I, granted, I do a lot of other supplements and things, but I really do think that's kind of a, it's one of those supplements that you find that's kind of like, wow, this should be a cornerstone of people's kind of vitality program, you know, their their health span. Really look at what you can do to extend things. Just try it. it you know, you'll notice the difference. I mean, that's that's in part why I really got on the bandwagon is after I did that first bit of testing, I thought, you know, holy shit, this is this is remarkable. Like I need to I need to do this, you know, just for myself. If if not just for myself, then Certainly once I started doing it, I wanted all the people that I, you know, I have my parents take it on the daily, my kids take it um, pretty much. It's I try and I do seem like an evangelist, but it's only because I believe in the stuff. Um, you know, there are a lot of other things that I'm a pretty big evangelist for, too. But, you know, this one I think is great and I think it's really remarkable and makes a huge difference. So, yeah. I think that's a, the final thought on C60 is just give it a whirl where it doesn't matter where you get the stuff from. Just try it. Yeah. You actually just sparked my interest. We forgot to kind of touch on the other, um, <clears throat> the other ingredients in, you know, in the products. I know you have like serapeptase, you have NMN. Why'd you add these other compounds in there with the C60? So it's, it's to address the other side of the, uh, the energetic cycle, right? So you block the systemic loss, but then if you put, NMN and resveratrol in, in a ratio together, you can upregulate the performance and you, you just get a much more robust energetic profile. So you start pumping out a lot more ATP and you just have the capacity for much better output. The serapeptase, everybody has aggregates that build up in their body, whether it's sclerotic tissue or whether it's, you know, tau proteins or whatever in your brain. Everybody has buildup, and that's a that proteolytic enzyme is great. It's the for people who don't know, Seretia E15 or serapeptase or Seretia peptidiase. It goes by a bunch of different names. It's a 
a silkworm enzyme originally, and silkworms use it to break down their cocoon and emerge from chrysalis. And a lot of the proteins and plaques in the body are structurally similar. So when you take it, it actually breaks those down into components that you can process through. And so that's that's kind of a cornerstone I put in a lot of things because it's really very beneficial. It used to be a drug in Japan, then it was downgraded from a drug to a supplement because they found that they couldn't get levels high enough in the bloodstream to actually make a marked difference. Um, but I, I think I've kind of surpassed that uh, as an issue a while back because when you put things in a sort of a nano buffer solution, it protects it against degradation in the GI tract. Um, you know, we tested things using uh, a thing called Western blot analysis to look at denaturation of proteins. We tested it and found that we could keep the proteins from denaturing, you know, in a very acidic environment, like to mimic stomach acid and also up to 80 degrees C. So, you know, like about 160 degrees. So very, very surprising how much we were able to keep the, the things from breaking down and the, the denaturation process from kicking in. And so it's really good if you can get a bunch of seropeptase in your system. I, I actually will tell people who have cardiac issues a lot of times, like take this, but also supplement with additional seropeptase because it will help kind of clean you out, almost like red yeast rice or something like that. Um, and then some of the other things, the the CoQ10, because of working on one of the components, the electron transport chain, and then PQQ, which is pureloquinoline quinone. And the PQQ, the idea there is, Rather than just have the existing mitochondria pumping out a, a ton of extra energy um, based on the capacity, you know, loading loading the mitochondria up with more C60 so that each individual one is putting out a huge amount of, of extra stuff. I thought, well, if you can add more mitochondria and make it a, a more diffuse, robust energy production system, it's better. Kind of the analogy is um, you, you can take a, you know, a Ford cylinder, Ford Fiesta and put NOS on the motor and get 600 horsepower, <laughs> but it's not going to go so well so long. You know, you can you can get that kind of output, but if you take, you know, a, a V12 Mercedes bi-turbo and, you know, you're gonna get the same 600 horsepower when it's basically running at 2000 RPMs and just kind of chilling out. And so my thought there was, well, if I can go in and I can actually trigger mitochondrial biogenesis and upregulate the amount of mitochondria, then I'll be able to distribute this load more evenly. And in the long term, that that actually has a lot of benefits because one of the new things I've been working with is taking urolithin A, which which triggers mitophagy, and using that so that you, you end up with more mitochondria over time, but then you can go back and trigger mitophagy and actually cull through them and knock out the ones that aren't functioning as well. And so, you again, you're just kind of rebuilding the body. You know, th this is in accord with, you know, the stuff that I've been doing with B cells, because ultimately I want to make sure that, you know, you don't want senescent cells floating around your body, right? Those are the zombie cells. And the problem with those is <clears throat> when, when normal cells start to dysregulate, they become senescent and they don't die. They just hang out. And that's, you know, the zombie cells. But they they perform a thing called paracrine signaling, which basically is just it sets up a, a detrimental feedback loop and a cascade in the cells that it's in proximity to. So let's say you say eight percent of the cells in your liver are senescent or something like that. It's going to set up a cascade and affect about 40 percent of your liver function. So it's that negative cascading and paracrine signaling effect that you're trying to uh, move around. So I wanted to increase the number and then be able to cull through them so that the the 
cells that are remaining have really super healthy mitochondria and all the mitochondria within those cells are the most robust that they can be. So it's, um, yeah, it's kind of a, it's a definitive process, but all of those different components are added in for a very specific purpose. Yeah, I think you've kind of built on that over time, right? Because you used to have the C360 company that was mostly yeah. just like C60 with a few serums. Is everything now Wizard Sciences or is it still two different companies? There's still two different companies. I left oh, okay. C360. My, my son actually still runs the lab over there, but it's not my company anymore. I left and I wanted to go a slightly different direction. I, I wanted to do things that really pushed the bounds of what was biologically possible, not just continue to, you know, sell sell things in the same capacity. The products are fine. I mean, they're they're very good. It was the the initial run of formulas that I had worked on and come up with. And everything is is good. I I recommend people to that a lot, you know, because they have some some base level products that are, you know, the C360 um has, you know, um carbon 60 plus, which is a 1.0 mg per mil strength um C60 in olive oil. And it's it's very inexpensive and, and it's a good product. Um, it's, it's doesn't have the same degree of bioavailability. Uh, that was one of the things when I left and started wizard, I, I really spent a lot of time looking at how to enhance the bioavailability of what I was doing. And that was one of the things that was kind of unfortunate is I, I realized it, it's not so much unfortunate. It's just, it's the progression. If you keep checking yourself and keep looking at what you're doing and trying to refine your own systems, you figure out, ah, I should have, I should have done this. Ah, I could have done this. And so this is where I'm at now is kind of the culmination of that. It's, you know, when I find better processes, I switch and I'm, you know, pretty agnostic about what I'm doing just as long as it's the, the kind of the state of the art and the best thing that I can do. So now every time I come up with something that makes it a little better or a little bit more refined, I do that, you know, so we've, we have the same formulas with the same ingredients, but Sometimes I'll come up with a, a slightly different mechanism for delivery that enhances, you know, uh, bioavailability and I'll, I'll shift because the, the ultimate goal here is really to try and create the absolute best products I could. Um, and so, and, you know, and that's what I've been doing. So I'm, I'm probably biased on it, but I really do think mm. that they're, they're kind of aces mm. at this point. Yeah, for me, I have no idea. I, I was always had heard about uh, C60 and never really tried it. And then um, Todd sent me over some of your products when we were scheduling the show. And um, I had the detox effects. And I'm like, oh, something's clearly working here. So I'm, I have no other comparison. I've only tried Wizard Sciences, so I don't know. Yeah, well, I, you know, feel free to give it a whirl at some point. The, the, you'll, you'll come back to it. Actually, one of the big telling things is if you take uh, take our animal product, uh, the Vortex or the canine formula, and you take that with some of the other things that are available for animals and you put them, literally you put them side by side, I guarantee you I know which way the dog moves because I've done it multiple times and <laughs> as have other people when we were doing the testing. You know, there's there's no real placebo effect there. They just know physiologically what is good for them and what is better for them. Um, and, you know, and it's... I'm kind of a diehard, you know, animal lover. So I, I would recommend that people use it with their animals too, because if you, if you want to see the lifespan change in something where there's not a placebo effect, give it to an old dog. Oh my God. It's remarkable. Like you, you will see them in the matter of days go from acting like an old dog to acting like a puppy. It's fantastic. The same thing applies to people. If you're, if you're actually pushing yourself, 
you get a huge shift. Sometimes I'll hear people say, like on the Olympics here, I'm like, oh, I didn't notice anything. And I've never heard an athlete say that because athletes immediately notice a difference. But it's kind of like my my goal is to try and give people the best tools and resources that I can. But if you're going to sit on a couch and drink a bottle of something and expect that it's going to change your world, no. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, that's not how this works. You know, you actually have to put in the effort. You know, I'll give you the wand. You have to cast the spell, right? Like, you know, you, you have to, you, it's, it's kind of an interactive thing. You've got to do something. That's why athletes are great for this stuff is because they track their metrics. They know where their level of performance is. They're working on it constantly. So they see the benefit. And, you know, I kind of like to think of myself in, in terms of what I do in a lab as kind of like a mental athlete. You know, I'm cognitively pushing myself all the time, trying to learn new things and do different things. So that I stay sort of at the cusp and the cutting edge of whatever field it is I'm working in at that particular moment. And it requires a lot of cognitive demand and hence there's a lot of cognitive drain. So I do this stuff all the time. Um, but it's again, I've given myself the tools, but I still have to put in the work. You know, I mean, I, you know, I, I've had to learn things that seemingly are kind of funny. Like I did rapping and a bunch of other stuff and then different languages and because it was something I had never done. And I know that, you know, you can do dual in back training and things like that, that push your brain, but you're far better off if you do something, as I had said, that's a completely different neural pathway that you haven't used before. And that's where you really end up with something that's stronger and more robust. And so I, you know, I'm kind of following my own uh, advice there and, and actually doing the work and, trying to learn new things and push myself. So, Yeah, that's great. I've actually heard you say that, um, you know, if you're not dealing with like a neurological deficit like myself, but after you take the neural RX or whatever for like a few weeks, you should start trying to learn something new, right? Yeah. At about the three-week mark is when your neurogenesis really kicks in and you start getting a lot of new neurons at a, at a faster pace. But again, your body, because they're so resource consumptive, your body goes through the synaptic pruning process and just whacks them. You know, it doesn't it doesn't want them to stick because if something, you know, we talked about this accounts for two to two and a half to three percent of your body mass, but consumes 20 to 25 percent of your available oxygen. Your body doesn't want that. It wants to regulate itself to be at the most optimal homeostatic balance for survival, not for optimum function, but for survival. Right. So if you want to be a peak performer, you've got to tweak what you're doing a bit. You know, it's I mean, that's why if you look at an athlete and they're super buff and they work out all the time and then they stop for a month, they lose muscle mass. Right. Why? Because you don't need that much muscle mass for survival. It's great if you're doing a specific task, but it's not what the body is designed to do. And so it regulates itself in that case or both of those cases. It down regulates itself so that your neural output drops, um, but also the demand on the system drops. Your muscular output drops, but also the demand for ATP drops throughout all of your your musculature. You know, you're just, you, the body is designed to survive. It's not designed to effectively thrive at any peak degree of capacity. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's awesome. I kind of want to shift gears. We got just a little bit of time left and uh, talk about some of this like uh, quantum biology. So I had uh, I had uh, Philip on the show. I don't know why I almost said Peter, but uh, I had Philip on the show 
and uh, we talked about the quantum upgrade, but I kind of wanted to get your take on it because you're pretty heavily involved in that as well. What have you seen with the quantum upgrade and the shifts in biology there? Uh, it is remarkable, actually. It, it's one. Of, it's one of those things that's so. It gets me excited because quantum biology is really fun to me because you can't look up the answers on Google, right? It's you can't find a book and say, oh, it's this. You actually have to think and uh, design experiments to show things. And so one of the things we just did was this double blinded study where we took uh, cells for Leela uh, at the university and and one professor cultured them and grew them and plated them and brought the plates out. And then I would take a, an image of one of the sets of well plates, like a 96 well plate filled with cells. And then I would send it to the Leela guys and they would put it in the quantum upgrade program. And then we would do a, a zero time point. And then we would do time points at intervals, you know, like every seven-ish minutes and look at the ATP output. And then before we did the final uh, reading on everything, I would say, okay, it's this plate. Um, you know, and so at the right before the very last time point so that I could identify for the professor, like which which one it was. And that was when the blinding ended. And then we would assess the data. Uh, and every time we were seeing an upwards of 20 percent jump in ATP in the cells and the other cells that were, you know, effectively the control group, they just had kind of a stochastic distribution where things moved kind of in a in a sort of normalish but slightly random function but just what you would expect every single time the atp output on the uh, cells for the quantum upgrade jumped 20 percent or more and that was just it was funny because i mean i get what's going on to a degree as much as i think anybody can right now because it's it's sort of a new field but it's just remarkable when you say like wow okay so something is exerting a force on these cells that's bumping up their cellular function over 20% from thousands of miles away when, you know, only one person knows which cells are the affected cells. It, it tells you that one, there has to be some sort of inherent intelligence that is isolating those things so it can know which grouping it is, uh, or that, you know, perhaps the other approach is that we are, part of a much larger thing that that uh, that inherent intelligence is a fraction of um, and that allows for it to know which set of cells are which but it's just it, it kind of makes me a little giddy because it's so bizarre with what classically we're taught um, you know but I, I know that the waveforms are all interactive right and so things are definitively non-local and they're happening at a distance and when I talk about waveform dynamics, actually, Philip asked me a couple of years ago um, to do a demonstration at the biohacking conference in Florida. And um, I think it was 2021. And he said, do you think you can do something to show people that there's quantum behavior going on that, you know, this isn't all just woo woo kind of stuff? And I said, yeah, I, I've got an idea. So actually with with uh, Todd. I called Todd because he has this horrible shellfish allergy and said, hey, man, I have this idea for a demonstration at the uh, the biohacking conference. Um, would you be down for doing something? He said, yeah, sure. And I said, OK, so you have a crab allergy, right? And he said, yeah, shellfish. And it's really bad. I said, OK, can you get some crab meat? And he said, yeah, do you want me to like put the crab juice in my eyes or something? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Hats off to Todd for being, you know, super trusting. But I was like, 
No, man. I, I, I really no. I don't want <laughs> to, to put crab juice in your eyes. Um, I said what I want to do is like a derma roller. So at the conference, we took a can of crab juice or a can of crab meat, and I opened it up and I derma rolled his arm, and then I put the crab juice from the can on it, and instantly he had a bad histamine reaction. Right, his arm blew up, turned to welts, and this is you can you can find it on YouTube um, because a lot of people took video of it. Um, but it, you know, had it's basically it was mimicking a dermal stamp test from from an allergist, right? Where you would do the needle pricks and then see what reacted. Well, in this case, it was just one long swath from a derma roller, and then the crab juice was put in, and so the whole thing blew up and got you know big welts and and all that. But then I put the the crab meat inside a quantum block, which is kind of similar to the quantum upgrade program, but the block is actually just these static pieces of anodized aluminum that have been modulated at a quantum level. Um, and so I, I put it in there and I just started talking about waveform dynamics. And one of the things that's interesting when you start looking at quantum physics is, you know, people, we all think that we're physical and, and we are in aggregate, but really when you start breaking it down bit by bit to look at what's really going on, you know, you never actually touch everything. It's just, you know, when I do this, it's electron cloud repulsion, right? So the electron clouds in that cup are pushing on the electron clouds in my finger. And the, the percussive nature of that is expressed by the force of those electron cloud interactions. So it's really just this repulsive force in differing degrees. And we are a collection of vibrating things. So a histamine reaction, as most people understand it, is this biochemical process. And it is. But that's actually kind of a, a tertiary thing that's very downstream from what's really going on. What's really happening is everything functions either constructively or destructively as waveforms. That's why some things are, you know, provide an allergic reaction for you and some things provide a beneficial reaction. If you have an allergic reaction, you're having a destructive interference pattern within a waveform. So the, the waveform that you consider to be yourself doesn't jive with whatever that particular compound is. <clears throat> so with Todd, after I put the uh, the crab meat in the block, I took it out and derma rolled his other arm, and then put the same crab juice in on the uh, the derma rolling on the other arm, and there was no reaction. And it's because the block changed the quantum functioning of the thing so that it made it more conducive to his biology. So there was no longer a harsh destructive interference; there was more of a constructive interference. And so the waveforms weren't at opposition. And so it's kind of, it's almost like you're sanding down something at a two levels before subatomic. <clears throat> and so the aggregate effect of that is things just function more effectively. That's super bizarre. Do you think the quantum upgrade helps with like, uh, with those histamine and food allergy? Because I've had it on since you guys put it out. <laughs> And I've actually had gluten a couple times recently that would normally like, you know, I didn't, have, it wasn't that bad of a reaction, but super bloated, just wouldn't really feel that well if I eat gluten. I've had it a couple times recently and I haven't really had a reaction at all. It's not a staple of my diet or anything, but it's kind of bizarre that I've had it and I didn't have any reaction. I didn't know if it was just from healing a little bit or the quantum upgrade. I wasn't really sure. Well, okay. So two things. One, we, we always say, you know, don't, don't do this at home kind of a thing. It's just a <laughs> disclaimer. So we, because we live in a painfully litigious society and everybody sues everybody for everything. Um, <laughs> now, luckily you got my pronouns right today, so I don't have to sue you. Um, so, <laughs> but, but, um, 
basically there was a study that was just completed in Europe and um, the data showed that after three minutes in a block, there was about a 75% reduction in, in response, like histamine responses and allergic responses to different foods. And after four minutes, there was about an 85% uh, to 90% reduction, which is kind of remarkable. And so is there a difference? Yeah, definitively there's a difference. So the quantum upgrade program, I'm, we haven't tested that portion of it yet. We did this with the block, but I would be inclined to say since they're coming from the same same sort of a you know quantum manipulation, yeah, I would say that there's going to be a definitive result. And obviously you're seeing it. It's again, it's just one of those things, you know, as a scientist, you have to be kind of ambivalent about where it is and agnostic about what you're doing and you're just like, okay, whatever. I'm not going to I'm not going to say it's this or it's this. But I will tell you what the data says, right? And that's why I can say definitively, like, we were showing 20% jumps in ATP output. Absolutely. We did it. We ran the experiment in quadruplicate. It's just a thing. You know, I'm not going to say that it's good, it's bad, it's otherwise, but I will definitively say that was the data. And with the, uh, with you know, being able to take away someone's histamine reaction or reaction instantly or within a few minutes, that is not, if you run down things the way that we think things ran, that's not something that happens. You don't go from having an allergic reaction to not having an allergic reaction to the same compound from the same can in three minutes, right? There's something obviously that's different. And so I kind of feel like as a scientist, you have to pull the thread, right? You look at that and go, huh, okay, I don't understand it, but obviously there's some effect. I'd better pull that thread and see what's going on. Which again, that's why I'm kind of jazzed by all this stuff is I I know that there are effects because we've proven that there are effects. Now it's just a matter of running it down a little bit more and seeing where it goes. Um, and, it, and it also makes me wonder how much of other things that we perceive where we have to make special cases and special exceptions for, how much of that is just us misattributing or, you know, things to, to specific interactions where they're really... <clears throat> shifts at a, a level that's so subtle that we don't normally see them or perceive them that are actually kind of uh, cropping up to to change things. The, the, actually, the thing that always comes to mind here is there was an old Far Side cartoon that I love that I think is very indicative of how science really works. And it was these two sharks swimming. And then one looks over at the other one as all these people are running up on the beach and says, dude, your dorsal fin is sticking up. I wonder how long that's been screwing things up for us. You know, and I think <laughs> a lot of times... That's really kind of how we are is we're like, huh, well, look at that. Well, I didn't know that was there. You know, I mean, it's been there the entire time. We just haven't noticed it. I always say that, you know, a lot of this stuff is kind of like if, if uh, you know, 500 years ago, you had said, listen, when you get ill, it's because of these little bitty bugs and they're moving in your body and they're, they're replicating and growing in number, you know, and that was all pre-microscope, right? So pre-von Leeuwenhoek, you, you didn't have the capacity to see when something was happening and a bacteria was growing. Afterwards, you could see that things were actually transpiring. But before we had the nomenclature to say, it is a this or it is a that, and before we had the equipment to actually test for it and, and definitively mark it out, it, it was, you know, it kind of seemed like magic, like, oh, you're you're sick because of the humors. I mean, we were doing the best we could, but we just didn't have the terminology and the quantum biology. It's the same thing right now. We're, we're doing the best we can, but we're still shooting around it. You know, like I can run a spectral analysis on something with a gas chromatograph and it will tell me 
you have this molecule, right? And that's effectively like saying you have a box and the box is this size, right? I've got a specific configuration in space that is this thing. But, well, let's suppose there's something in the box, right? Well, that's kind of where we are with quantum biology is we don't yet have the data to really discern what's happening inside the box. We know there's a box and that's where the science stops. But one of the analogies I'll use is I'll say, okay, imagine you have a suitcase and it's filled with gyroscopes and they're just randomly sitting there and they're not spinning and you're running down and you take a 90 degree turn while you're running. You're fine. You can make the turn. No big deal. Well, imagine you're running down and all of the gyroscopes are on and spinning in the same direction and you take that turn you're going to get pulled off of your feet by the resistance, you know, and, and it's the same thing. We, we know that there's something happening, but we don't yet know what. And that's, uh, I mean, I kind of feel like that's what, as a scientist, it's sort of incumbent upon you to try and figure that out because that's what will push the next generation forward. And, and a lot of the assessments, you know, I make or my colleagues may make, we could be completely wrong, you know, and, and that's okay. Um, hopefully we'll do the test, we'll get the data, we'll suss something out, we'll figure out what's going on, and we'll make our best educated guess, you know, test out a hypothesis, see if it works, and then we'll build on that. But again, you know, maybe somebody comes out with something a few decades from now and realizes it's like, oh, well, it was actually this. Yeah, so be it, you know, is, mm -hmm. is part, part of one of the cogs in the wheel. We're just trying to move things forward a little bit so that those guys can get to the point where they can figure it out. Yeah, it's super cool. I kind of like the fact that I we don't know exactly what's working, but it's working. It's like a, this mysterious type of thing. But I know for a fact that when I bumped it up too high when I first got it, it was I was like, I got to turn this down. My wife was like, turn the shit down because <laughs> I had it yeah, bumped up at, a little bit. Well, I was at a conference and there was a fellow named uh, Larry Pham there. And he caught me when I was coming into the conference one morning and he said, and he was tracking, he had, a, I think, an Apple Watch that he was using. Maybe it was a Fitbit, but he was, he was tracking his pulse at the time. And he said, I don't know what's going on. When I walk across to the other side of the room, my heart rate's going up 20 beats a minute. And, and he showed me, and it, and, it, and it was. And I said, well, Larry, that's because you're, you're walking in proximity to this Gen 8 block that we have. And I said, it's just, it's overloading your nervous system a little bit. It's too much, you know, quantum energy coming out. And, and that sounds kind of, it, to a lot of people, it'll send a little woo-woo, but, you know, we, we did the experiment there just, and I did it with him real time to show him what was happening. And, you know, the closer you would get to the block, the, the more things would accelerate, and then he'd walk back on the other side of the room, and it would drop again. And so it's definitely, it's a, a proximity effect. Um, but it's also, your nervous system has to be adapted to it. It's kind of like lifting weights. You don't, even though working out is super beneficial, you don't want to go into the gym and put you know, four 45 pound plates on each side of a bell and, you know, like or bar rather and and start doing incline presses, you'll you'll kill yourself. Right. You know, <laughs> like that's that's not how that works. You've got to work up to it. Um, and in this the same way, you, you ratchet the number down and the numbers are kind of they're uh, for sake of ease. They're built along the Hawkins scale, you know, in terms of the output of the levels of consciousness. Uh, and I would recommend that anybody who hasn't read that book, um, not actually read the book, but get the audio book on Audible, uh, listen to, you know, Power Versus Force by David Hawkins. It's brilliant. It's probably the, literally the single most impactful thing I've ever read and listened to in my entire life. And, but 
the uh, the Leela stuff is all broken down on the quantum upgrade program so that you can go in and you can adjust it based on the level of consciousness, which is a good indicator. And it, just because you pump something up to 600 doesn't mean your consciousness is moving to that point. It just means that that's kind of the environment that you're in, because there, there are lots of things. Like if you go into a, a church or, you know, like an old cathedral, um, that's going to that's going to pump the environment around you up pretty substantially to above the 600 threshold. And for those of you who haven't read the book, those numbers are, they'll seem a little bit arbitrary, but again, I just recommend everybody kind of familiarize themselves with it because it's a very brilliant way to assess different states of awareness and consciousness. Um, but yeah, you have to find what's appropriate for your own physiology. And then after you do it for a little while, and I'm sure you did this, after you did it for a little while, you could handle what you couldn't handle before. And then you dial it up again. So. Yeah, now, now I'm at um, <clears throat> 900. A thousand still seems a little, a little too strong for me. I've tried to, because I can actually, because you know, every people who don't have it don't know, but every so often they unlock like another hundred. You can yeah. go up a little bit, and uh, a thousand still kind of makes me a little tired, a little fatigued, and so I'm like, all right, I'll just stick with the 900 until for a little bit longer. But I've had to gradually bump that up over i've had it since you guys dropped it that's got to be like four yeah. or five months now yeah. so like every month and a half or whatever i go up 100 you know and then it seems pretty normal and i get like a kind of another boost of energy but if i do too much then i get tired so it's it's kind of funny um what are you at now 1500 <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah not not to be disclosed actually i try and probably probably nothing that cool so <laughs> Yeah, I didn't know. I thought Philip uh, said something about people are using fourteen hundred or something, and they're they're just. You also have to make sure, obviously, people have safely used that level for a period of time before you allow the general public to do that. But I was yeah. interested. Yeah, to... well, I think I think it um it you know it depends. I I love the program, use the program. I have it on my office, but um it's uh it's it's a really good thing, but. The effects, uh, the effects on me are perhaps a little different than on your average bear lately. So, mm -hmm. uh, and it, when we're when we're offline, I'll I'll maybe do a demonstration of, <laughs> of a thing that you know I, I was actually at a dinner with the uh, the Leela guys and a bunch of people at a conference about a week ago, and um, beyond a certain level of consciousness, you you uh, you know, and I just. I, I'm probably a little brazen and talk about it a little bit much, but it's kind of funny to me because it's just a scientific curiosity. Beyond a certain threshold, you're able to do things that are not, you know, standard. You know, you you have mm. capacities that just aren't aren't normal. Um, but everybody can work up to it. And uh so for me the the effects of the the upgrade are a little different, I would say, than than on most people. But it's great. I mean, I, I love it to have it around the lab because it's uh, it's really nice for the staff, and and luckily everybody that works here, I think, has a really good attitude anyway. But I think it's yeah. a, it's conducive to a really loving environment. So that, that's probably my favorite part of that. Yeah, I think it helps, and then I have the inner peace on my house as well, and I I felt like I've slept uh, slept a lot better, and it just like you know the whole house has just been real calm and chill, you know. Me and my wife don't really argue that much anyways. We're both pretty good at communication if something's really off or feeling off or one of us needs attention or whatever. But um, it seems like there's just an added level of like less anxiety and less kind of like frustration with the inner peace stacked on top of the quantum upgrade as well. Yeah, you know, I still carry, um, I, I think I have the gratitude card in my wallet, um, you know, because I'm, I'm a, 
that's actually something that I think everybody should really focus on is like having, having, having a lot of gratitude is pretty cool. And right. Yeah, uh, the gratitude card, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I love these things. I, I generally don't have them even, even though that I'm the, the scientific advisor for the company, I generally don't have my heel capsule or my cards because I keep giving them away to people. Um, because, <laughs> you know, I, well, I mean, that's kind of the thing, right? Is ultimately you, you hope that that's sort of intrinsic inside yourself is, you know, you don't have to have it extrinsically applied. You, you sort of become the, uh, become the, the beacon for it. And you're, you're kind of pushing out love and harmony and good stuff all the time anyway. And so usually when I have these things, I'll probably have that gratitude card for another week or so. And I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure at some point I'll be like, Hey, here you go. Enjoy. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. Cool, man. Well, I think we rocked it out. I think we covered a lot of ground here today. Had a lot of just cool regular conversation, but also got got a few questions in as well. Why don't you tell everybody um what's 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 next? What are you working on and uh, tell everyone where they can find you as well? Um well, I'm actually uh let's see. I'm working on some kind of interesting uh physics stuff around propulsion systems that that are really cool and I'm actually going to going to write some papers and put them out just uh, about one of the, the drive systems that I, that I tested out here that, you know, other people have been working on. They, I think they just unfortunately missed some of the principles. So I'm, uh, I'm going to push that out. And then I've got a couple of other environmental things that I'm doing um, desalination specifically because um, one of my goals was to try and help get clean water for people. So I, I worked out a system for desalination and I'm going to try and get some traction with that. And then I'm going to keep wow. doing all of the uh, the wizard stuff, and you know, coming up with m more serums and formulas to uh, to to help people. And then I'm working with another company that's doing red light and infrared therapies, and a company doing cosmetic stuff, and then another company doing nootropics, and so kind of <laughs> keeping myself really super busy. But all things that I think will actually kind of beneficially move the needle in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, anybody who's curious, they, you can find me on Instagram at Wizard Sciences, or you can, you know, hit me up at Ian Mitchell one is, is my personal thing. And, and a lot of people ping me just to ask questions. And I, I still, it's getting more and more difficult, um, <laughs> to, to keep up. I still respond to everybody, but it's taking longer and longer. And I, and honestly, at this point, I, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to do that because just the, the number of people that are, are paying me with uh, direct messages, you know, uh, to try and respond to things. It's, it takes a fair amount of time just to respond. So, you know, but for now I'm able to do it. And I, I always feel like if you have the capacity to answer somebody's questions, it's sort of incumbent upon you to do that because you know, what good is the knowledge if you don't share it? So I, you know, w while, while I'm accessible and I can still do it, I still try and help everybody as much as I can. But I think, we're maybe moving to a format where I might start doing, you know, kind of a, a weekly thing where I'll have, you know, like a, a weekly show where I'll just kind of an AMA, you know, where people have concerns or questions about something, they can just reach out to me. And for an hour or so, I'll, I'll be available and just, you know, they can send in questions and then I'll just try and field as many of them as I can. And the, the idea being it'd be, you know, an open access forum so that people could get access to the data and, and find the answers. Um, you know, other than that, I, I think I'm just going to continue, uh, working on the, uh, the, the expansion of my own awareness and, and trying to do good things. I mean, just, uh, kindness is pretty cheap. 
you know, it doesn't, it doesn't take a, doesn't take a whole lot of effort to change the world. Just, you know, go out and be nice to people. And that's, uh, that's a pretty big, uh, a big one. So I think that's, you know, I, I have my, uh, safety third t-shirt on, which is kind of the motto at the lab. And everybody asks like, you know, what's first and well, kindness in innovation. So kindness is first, innovation is second, safety is third. So <laughs> you know, it's sort of, it's sort of the shirt's actually an homage to me blowing up the lab when I was trying to figure out one of the products that I made, uh, <laughs> but you know, that's okay. You want to, you want to change the world, get a lot of smart people in a room who really aren't that concerned with that sort of stuff. And who really want to make a difference and you'll end up helping things, but, <laughs> but mm-hmm. it may not be within the normal constraints that everybody else is playing in. So. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time out today. I think that you're super, super intelligent. Your heart's in the right place. You're pushing the envelope. So I'll continue to push your products and, you know, maybe as new products and new things come out, maybe we can uh, have a few more chats on the show. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. I I genuinely appreciate that. So thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you so much. Enjoy your day. If you enjoy this show, would you please take a second to subscribe, rate and review it for me? Also, if you'd like to know more information about Combo, personalized one-on-one coaching with me, or for upcoming retreat information, which I host with my wife, please visit my website in the show notes or DM me on Instagram. My handle over there is at Integrative Matt. Until next time, my friends.